He's a fantasy sports industry Hall of Famer with a basket full of expert league titles. He's Glenn Colton from Fantasy Alarm and the Colton and the Wolfman Show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. And we have him next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Thursday, April the 26th. It's show number four of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Thursday full edition show for you. We'll have our feature interview with Glenn Colton from Fantasy Alarm and the Colton and the Wolfman Show on Sirius XM, discussing the week that was, fabbing theory and practice, some of the big stories for Major League Baseball so far, and his boons and banes for the rest of this season. We'll also have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Adam Wainwright, Ronald Acuna, Albert Amora, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at Adrian Beltre, Tim Beckham, Melky Cabrera, and more. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in the Minor League Minute. Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon reports on White Sox right-hander Michael Kopech. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Milwaukee first baseman Jesus Aguilar. And in our pitcher matchup segment, analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Masahiro Tanaka in L.A. to face the Angels' Garrett Richards, Mike Fultonevich in Philly to face Nick Pavetta, and some other weekend matchups. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly Talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about managers and weather in the early season. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about exit velocity and launch angles. It's another big Thursday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Ronald Acuna is finally in the big leagues. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first thing of this Thursday news and comment edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Glenn Colton from Fantasy Alarm and the Colton and the Wolfman show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Glenn, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. It has been, and a pleasure to be back, Patrick. Well, before we get started with the nuts and bolts, uh, how are your teams doing so far in this young season? Uh, well, you know, when you have a lot of teams, there's going to be uh, some up and some down, but largely there's more up than down. We're in contention in, in most leagues, and, you know, you can't get too carried away at the very beginning because, you know, one Didi Gregorius uh, grand slam, and, you know, the standings change dramatically at this stage. Yeah, they do. And uh, are you playing all all your teams this year in partnership with Rick Wolf? Uh, all but my uh, my home, well, two. All but my home league, which I've been in uh, since 1988. Um, and there's a Fantasy Alarm. Both Rick is the president of Fantasy Alarm. I work uh, with them. Uh, there's a staff league, and it's a head-to-head league, and we actually play against each other in that for uh, a change of pace. How do you like that head-to-head format? I don't love it, to tell you the truth. I, I mean, I encourage people to play whatever they like. If you like it, play it. Uh, happy to discuss it. But I think that there's just, you know, sort of too much variability I- in that head-to-head format. I like the year-long kind of slog and grind and pay attention every day uh, type of thing. And I'll play head-to-head in football. 
Yeah, it seems to make more sense in football. I, I have to say, I've tried head-to-head once a long time ago. We ran my home league uh, in two uh, parallel leagues. Uh, basically, we had Standard Roto, which was for the money, but we also ran head-to-head in divisions to see if we'd like it, and nobody did. So <laughs> it was it was actually quite exciting and quite interesting, but nobody liked it, so we didn't, uh, didn't get going. Uh, before we talk about uh, your work at Fantasy Alarm and elsewhere, uh, what trends in fantasy sports should listeners be aware of? Yeah, I think the big thing here is, you know, I'm on the legal front, and you know, I, of course, am a lawyer for uh, my day job and most of my hours. Uh, the Supreme Court is currently considering, you know, the question of whether to overrule a statute called PASPA or the uh, Professional Amateur Sports Protection Act, which would open up the possibility of states legalizing gambling. Uh, we're recording on a Tuesday afternoon and uh, Tuesday morning, excuse me, and for all I know, the Supreme Court will issue the decision today. And the issue is, if um, it, gambling becomes legal, then fantasy, which is a game of skill, surely will have no further issues in those places where gambling is legal, which will open up a lot more, you know, different types of offerings, different types of opportunities for people to play for money, not for money, uh, big prizes, small prizes, whatever they like to do. Um, and so I think that's the next big thing. Uh, coming in the industry, that innovation that could be spurred by uh, a legalization in, uh, or a resolving of any legal questions that exist. Seems unusual that at one point the the, uh, the industry was arguing that it wasn't gambling and still does make that argument that a pro-gambling decision by the Supreme Court should be so beneficial given the distance that the industry has tried to maintain from the gambling business. Well, no. I mean, uh, to put it another way, Patrick, if you if you think about it that says, okay, um, you know, the silly example, if uh, you think that, um, you know, 50 steals will be enough to win your league and you go and you know that you have uh, 75, then 50 is surely enough. So just by analogizing, if gambling is legal, then even those people who are wrong and say fantasy sports is luck and gambling fantasy sports would still be legal. So the point is, any argument, I think a wrong-headed one, that fantasy is gambling wouldn't matter if gambling was legal. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. Uh, let's move on to your work as an analyst, which is extremely interesting. You write regularly at fantasyalarm.com, a column called The Week That Was. It's kind of a survey of the past week's action around the majors from a fantasy perspective, which is really important. Uh, before we get into the details, when does the column appear? Column appears every Monday, uh, usually Monday morning, on FantasyAlarm.com. How do you choose, out of all the stories, out of all the things that happen over the course of a week in the big leagues, how do you choose what goes into the column? Well, really, it's, it's a couple of things. First, I try to avoid the stories that everybody's going to cover. Sean Manaya's no-hitter, you know, the previously Arenado suspension, things of that nature that, you know, even the most casual fan would have seen. Uh, I also try to cover things where there'll maybe some predictive nature that a reader could say, ooh, you know, I may be able to, uh, you know, take advantage of that in my league, this new information. And third, in all candor, Patrick, it's kind of what I, a player I feel like focusing on that week. In the April 23rd edition, just earlier this week, you said C.J. Crone of the Tampa Rays is a breakout hitter, your words, and that his window is closing for people who want to pick him up. What do you think makes Crone a breakout this year as opposed to a guy having a good week? Well, you, you take a look at he, 
for some reason that I don't really understand, he never got an opportunity to play full-time. So in the last three years, he's averaged about 370 at-bats a season and still has hit 16 home runs, which is, you know, maybe 16 home runs in 60% or 55% of a season. He gets full-time play now that he doesn't have to deal with Albert Pujols uh, on the same team with him. And all of a sudden, the opportunity to be a much more productive hitter, I think, comes around. And he's 28 years old and really getting his first chance to play full-time, which I think is, uh, you know, something that is just a guy who can um, take it to the next level. And if you take a look at some of his stats, uh, you know, his success so far this year is not, uh, you know, is not BABIP-driven, and um, his home run per fly ball, while a little bit above uh, his previous seasons, is not insanely higher. So I really think this is a guy who is going to rise, and the 44% hard hit rate supports that. Are there any concerns when a player all of a sudden inherits or moves into a situation where he gets a lot more at-bats? Does that raise the possibility that there might be more opportunities for the uh, other teams in the league, the pitchers in the league, to figure out how to get him out and and make his vulnerabilities more obvious? I'm thinking in particular platoon-type vulnerabilities. You know, I think that's true, and I think that's a fair point. But, you know, a guy like Crown or Cron, I'm honestly not sure exactly how you say that, um, is a guy who's been around for a while, you know, who the pitchers have been studying because he's been in the league and gotten 300-plus at-bats for a number of years. And if you take a look at his, uh, his splits, they're, they're not classic platoon splits. This is a guy whose batting average in 17 and 16 was actually better against righties, despite the fact that he hits right-handed, than it was against lefties. So I don't worry about him being sort of a classic platoon split type of guy. Yeah, I noticed the batting average thing too. I wondered if you'd looked into like hard hit and that kind of stuff, but there are those players who just need the chance and maybe CJ Crone's one of them. Uh, you said in that same column not to overlook Miguel Andujar of the Yankees uh, in the glare of Glaber Torres's call up. Uh, certainly Andujar has looked uh, like a major league hitter so far. Of the two of them, which do you prefer though? Well, you know, I guess it depends on the question. For a um for a real baseball team, as much as I like Andujar, it would be Glaber Torres, who's still only 21 years old and has, you know, just been a star at every level. And I, I wasn't there. I think you probably were when he just dominated the Arizona Fall League at 19 years of age, and he's got all five tools, if you will. Andujar, not really clear where he's going to settle in defensively at the end of the day. So in real baseball, I'd prefer Torres. Um, this year, I think in the next month or so, I'd prefer Andujar because... Um, Torres is going to get his major league feet under him, but for the year-long statistics across the five, I think I still go with uh, with Torres, who is just a terrific talent. Yeah, there's something to be said for that, and the Yankees are a good organization. I've said often on this show with uh, many of the experts who've come on that I think we really need to pay close attention to the how the organization succeeds at developing its talent when we're making decisions about prospects. And uh, I think the Yankees have proved themselves as being a pretty uh, adept organization at finding and developing the talent. And if that's the case, then uh, just the fact that they traded to acquire Glaber Torres and then they've decided already to call him up when there were some reports that maybe they'd hold off on it a little while longer, uh, forced their hand by injuries a bit. But uh, you got to like the way the Yankees are doing things. And anytime you like the way the organization is doing things, you got to like the things they do. 
Oh, I agree with that. Here's an, an interesting thing. The New York Yankees, you know, the classic organization that trades, signs the older Jason Giambi and Gary Sheffield and trades for Jack Clark and things of that nature. Sunday in Glaber Torres' first game, there was nobody, not the pitcher, not the designated hitter, and not any of the fielders, none of them had reached their 30th birthday. Yeah, I heard that because uh, Brett Gardner was uh, not playing to start the game. Is that correct? You also noted that Logan Morrison of the Twins got a rare base hit, and you said uh, in an, in looking at Logan Morrison that two things are conspiring against him as far as being a successful fantasy player. What are the two things that are conspiring against Logan Morrison? Well, I mean, number one is the perceived value is just too high. He's, you know, he was 38 home runs last year, um, and he's just not that player um, in, in any way. If you take a look at his history, I don't believe he hit that many home runs in the previous two seasons combined. So I think there's an expectation there of recency bias that's going to work against him. And the second one is, and this is something that Rick Wolf and I write about all the time in our rules of engagement, the Players in a new home tend to struggle out of the gate. They're, they're people who are with new colleagues, living in a new home, having to move their family, get used to new routines, and, they tend to, and they're pressing to justify their you know, talent to their new colleagues. So they tend to underperform at the beginning, and it's not really clear how long that's going to last, depending on who you are. Uh, I worry less about it last year with Edwin Encarnacion, who I said probably have a bad April but be fine afterwards. Morrison, without that kind of track record, I wonder how long that initial adjustment slump will really roll. So does that make um, does that make Logan Morrison perhaps somebody to target as a buy low opportunity on the expectation that as bad as he's been, there's uh, basically nowhere to go but up. Uh, I think it's you have to buy very low because. It, again, it's not a guy like, you know, who, who gets a new home like the Pujols and the Encarnacion's or Robbie Cano's who have started slow. This is a guy who's had one year in the major leagues. He's 30. One year in the major leagues where he had over 72 RBIs and only one year where he hit over 250. So there isn't the same track record to say bounce back. So it would have to be, for me, uh, buying very low. How do you determine uh, that the player has not just developed some kind of new skill? We saw it last year, for instance, with Justin Smoke as well. Smoke and Morrison were kind of in tandem climbing up the home run charts. But for some reason, a lot of analysts seem to think that Smoke is for real. He made some adjustments to his swing. Uh, is it not possible that Morrison did the same thing? Or do you really believe that 38 home runs was more the result of luck than design? Well, I think it was. You know, he's a good player who produced like a great player. But I don't think he had the pedigree in any way that, you know, Justin Smoke had, Smoke being a switch hitter, so you don't run the risk of being out of the lineup. He's a bit of a better fielder at first base. He's in a better park in Toronto, as, of course, you well know, Patrick. And, you know, when you take a look, Morrison is one of those very emotional players, so he's subject to a lot of swings, you know, back and forth. But... I don't see that big a change in his, you know, hitting uh, advanced metrics, whereas with Smoke at the end of 16, there was sort of a big change, and that's the difference. The only real, if you take a look, he's still, Morrison's still a dead pull hitter. Um, his hard hit rate didn't really go up that much. Um, 
you know, his infield fly ball rate didn't really go down that much, et cetera. So smoke, you could see the change in the advanced metrics. And with Morrison, I don't see it. Yeah, we especially saw a great improvement in uh, plate patience for Justin Smoke, uh, and he talked about it in uh, media interviews and stuff, and I know a lot of that's just noise, but he did talk about being more selective, and the and the metrics bore that out. And I think those are the kind of changes that you have to look deep into to figure things out. Uh, you wrapped up the column with three relatively unheralded players coming into the season, and they're really doing well. Christian Villanueva in San Diego, everybody's heard about him in the home runs. Uh, Jarlin the Marlin Garcia in Miami with a sub-1 ERA and sub-1 whip, and longtime utility infielder Ryan Flaherty, who was, the last time I checked, was uh, at the top of the National League in hitting. He was hitting over 350. What are the outlooks for these three surprise players, and how do you look at guys who just come out of nowhere in this fashion? Well, you know, first off, Patrick, you know, those are three players highlighted by uh, my, uh, my good friend Dave Schultz, who is real, and Schultz is really somebody who puts into the column every week, so I've got to give him the credit for picking out those three players. But um, talking about them, I think Villanueva is, you know, for real in the sense that he's going to be a good player. He had very strong uh, stats in 2016 and 17 in the minors, and the power is real. I think that the batting average will probably dip a fair amount. The BABIP says that there's going to be a correction there. But I like Villanueva as a player, and I think that, you know, the Padres are, are not going anywhere this year, so why give third base back to Chase Headley. Um, with respect to Jarlin the Marlin, as you put it, which I, uh, I'm going to use if you give me permission. Sure. Uh, I think that's very clever. It, look, he's been really, really good, but going into yesterday, some of the advanced metrics just scared the living daylights out of me. A 41% first pitch strike, which is miserable. 8% swing strike, which is well below average. A 96% strand rate or left on base percentage, which, you know, if it's over 70, you have to start worrying whether there's some luck. And a BABIP under 100, uh, which, of course, can't last. So I think there's a huge correction coming here. And what about Ryan Flaherty, who up until now has just been one of those guys that hanging around near the end of the bench? I mean, it's a 223 career hitter. I think it's great that he's um, you know, having some success. But ask yourselves this, why would Atlanta sign, you know, the aging Jose Bautista, Joey Bats, convert him into a third baseman if they thought Flaherty could keep this up for any length of time. So the risk here is playing time almost as much as it is a, a um, regression to the mean uh, batting average-wise and otherwise? Oh, I think it's, yes, I think it's both of those things. And, you know, it's very rare. It's a great story, but it is very, very rare that, um, Somebody just changes their game so dramatically uh, in their 30s. And, you know, you take a look at Flaherty, 426 BABIP can't last. And the contact rate really isn't, uh, you know, that much different. So he's not putting the ball in play that much more than he used to. And, um, you know, none of the other sort of advanced metrics tell me uh, this is a big change. His, it, you know, his hard hit rate is 27%. That is hardly a star. That's below average even this year. Well, on the other side of the hard-hit ball question from the previous week's column in the week that was at FantasyAlarm.com, I have to mention how enthusiastic you were about Mike Moustakis of the uh, sad sack Kansas City Royals. What's the appeal of Mike Moustakis, do you think? I mean, look, this is a guy who, you know, but for the injury-interrupted season, has been 
on a real climb. The home run's going 12, 15, 22, and then 38. And he's the rare power hitter who has always maintained good contact, 82% contact rate for a 38-home run guy. That's really good. And if you take a look, people say, oh, I'm a little worried about the batting average. He hit 272 with a well below average 260 BABIP. So the batting average, you know, being in the 270s, I think is pretty secure. And he's just raking. 48% hard hit this year. Uh, I think he, he has something to prove, and he will prove it, and his contract next year will be a lot better than uh, what he had to settle for this year. Well, unless they're colluding or something like that to prevent guys from making uh, what the uh, numbers suggest that they're worth. Uh, his BABIP this year is at about 313, which uh, that's kind of league normal these days, a little bit, maybe a little bit high, but it's usually about 30 or 31% on hit rates, which corresponds to a 310 BABIP. And uh, here he is hitting 318, which is kind of full value. Yeah, look, I, I, I think he's for real, and... I said, it was interesting, we were out in Arizona at the labor drafts at the very beginning of um, March, before Moustakis had signed, and Rick Wolf and I bought Moustakis in the labor AL auction for, I think it was $9, which is about half of what he would go for if everyone knew he was in the American League and we could keep him. And I was saying at the you know, celebration, if you will, afterwards, I see him re-signing in Kansas City, and I see him hitting, and then I see them trading him in July for young players. So I think that that's exactly what's going to happen, and he may end up in a much better situation before the year's over. Uh, yeah, that is interesting. Now, you, all the leagues you have him in, he you get to keep his stats if he gets traded out of the league? Uh, all the leagues I am in, yes. I, I, I refuse to play in a league where it has that luck uh, where you could lose uh, a player. And that comes, from my, that comes from me from my experience back in 1989, my home league is the old Eastern Divisions, and the Yankees traded Ricky Henderson, who was then one of the best players in baseball and surely the best fantasy hitter, given the steals and power. And they traded him for nothing. You know, Greg Cattaray, Eric Plunk, and Luis Polonia, and most listeners say, who, who, and who? And if I would have had to lose Ricky Henderson for those players, I'd have quit. <laughs> That's sort of the way uh, I've come to view. Don't lose a player when he gets traded out. It's just luck, and it's not, it's not worth having that rule. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Glenn Colton from FantasyAlarm.com and the Colton and the Wolfman show on Sirius XM Radio. And, Glenn, it seems like a lot of the experts coming onto this show and on the Internet, any place we read about fantasy baseball, are getting more and more interested in the gaming, the strategy and tactics involved in free agent bidding, which is becoming increasingly important. You wrote the fab analysis last week for the Tout Wars American League League that we're both in. Uh, first of all, what errors do you think uh, fantasy owners commonly make in uh, fab decision-making? I call it the pyrite era, or what's commonly known as fool's gold. You see somebody who, you know, ooh, is just uh, the new shiny thing or had a big game on Friday night or Saturday as you're doing your Sunday bidding, and you end up spending money on someone who quite obviously and predictably goes back to the mean or the norm. So one of the big mistakes people make is, oh, look look at this guy, um, either because he's not that good or because it is very clear he's not going to have a long-time role uh, on the team and you're just um, spending a lot of fab for a few days' worth of potential production. Um, you know, for me, the big decision you have to make, and you have to make it early, 
is are you going to spend early and often to try to bank a year's worth of stats from guys you're, you're buying in FAB, or are you going to be very cautious so that you get half a year's worth of stats or, or 10 weeks' worth of stats from a superstar who could get traded in or from a closer who gets anointed? And that's a decision you have to make because you can't go back and forth. I agree with that, and the question is, there's there's not really a, a way to optimize that that we can make a general rule out of, right? I mean, it depends on your league, it depends on what the other guys in your league, what you know about them, what they need at a given point, how much fab each guy has, and his track record of doing the bidding. It just seems like there are so many variables that it's, uh, speaking of fool's gold, it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of alchemy to try to turn all of that into general rules about how to operate your fab budget, isn't it? I think it is, but I do think that if you are cautious with your bidding, you are likely, let's just say in an AL only or an NL only, to end up in the top half of the amount of money. And typically there's four to five valuable players that come in uh, during the course of July. So that's your strategy. What I would say is this is a general rule, and you're right, everything is league-specific, but as a general rule, Look, set a set of metrics that you want to live by. So um, are you going to jump on a guy who's going to get called up in a week or two so you get them early? Chris List won Tout Wars one year by jumping on Carlos Correa a couple of weeks before he got called up. Look at the advanced metrics and say, okay, this guy's got a, you know, a, a, a 5 ERA, but... The BAPIP is crazy. The strand rate is terrible. The home run for fly ball is out of is out of whack. Go grab that guy cheap because he meets your your advanced metric test. Whatever your test is, follow that test and don't deviate from. Oh, that would be just cool to buy this guy. In our Tout Wars American League, uh, Lourdes Goriel, the uh, younger brother of uh, Yuri Goriel of the Astros, was called up by Toronto, got off to a pretty good start. He had a few hits in his uh, early going, and he went for, I think the bid was $160, something like that, out of 1000 was the winning bid. I bid 39 and I thought I'd be competitive, and I wasn't close. I wonder, does Lourdes Goriel seem like the kind of guy that you want to spend 15% of your fab on? Uh, all at once, given the what we know about him and what we know about the the uh, Blue Jays and that sort of thing? You know, honestly, no. I mean, it's not a guy that I see a lot of power or speed upside. Right. There's also playing time risk there. Um, yeah, it's nice that he had, uh, you know, a couple of good weeks in AA, but he was bad in AA last year. So I think this is a situation where, you know, unless you're sort of just desperate, or middle infield help, uh, which Vlad might well have been, I think it's a big buy, uh, and, and I think it's an overpay. Now, I may be proved to be wrong. Vlad's a terrific uh, fantasy baseball player, but I wouldn't have done it. And, of course, all of these rules change depending on whether you're playing a deep league like a, a, an NL or AL only versus a, a shallower league like a 15 or especially a 12-team mixed where there's all kinds of opportunity in the free agent pool that just isn't there in those single leagues. That, that's absolutely right. I mean, in a 12 or 15-team mixer, you see a guy you think is going to be able to produce all year, you know, fire away. Because, remember, the difference in the mixed leagues is players don't really get traded in. Occasionally you'll have trades that create a closer for the last couple of months, but 
big-time hitters don't get traded in. All of a sudden, you know, uh, you don't see um, an Albert Pujols come into your league or an Edwin Encarnacion come into your league. They're owned in all the mixed leagues. So there's a lot less at the end of the year in July and August to buy because the big-time players are already owned. And before we let this topic go, I'd just like your quick opinion on trading because it seems from my uh, experience, limited as it may be, that it's getting harder and harder to make trades in fantasy leagues. And I hear that from other guys I know who play and from watching the other leagues that uh, the experts are playing in. Uh, trading seems to be rapidly disappearing from the game, and I wonder what you think of that. First of all, is it your experience as well? And second of all, what does it all mean? You know, I think it's harder and harder to trade largely because there's so much information out there, uh, but also because people fall in love with the players they bought. And they, don't, and they value the player that they bought higher than somebody else values that player, and there's an emotional investment uh, that's hard to quantify. So I think that's one of the reasons. And I think the second thing is that you can get a reputation as somebody who makes bad offers. And then people just don't want to deal with you. So in Tout Wars, I'm not going to name names, but there is definitively one player who you know it's going to be unreasonable requests and unreasonable offers, and you just say, ah, I'm not going to deal with that particular person. Once you have two or three of those in your league, the odds of making a deal are, you know, much harder. Year after year after year, we end up, Rick Wolf and I, making deals with Steve Gardner, Doug Dennis, Chris Liss, because... We've got a history of making deals that are good for both teams. Patrick, I trust you, so anytime you want to talk tout AL deal, we'll talk deal. I enjoy the, the process of talking about trading and uh, comparing notes on what players are worth. Uh, it, it surprises me sometimes in an expert's league, and I know a lot of these guys are playing in 12, 14 leagues uh, and have lives beyond that, so I don't expect uh, you know any kind of big uh, analytical disquisition on, on the topic of why the trade works, but at the same time, uh, my opinion, and, and this may just be me, but I get trade offers that are delivered through the uh, online trading system at on roto.com our our provider and all it is is an offer it just says you you give me this i'll give you that and there's no justification for it there's no explanation why the person thinks this is a good idea I don't know. I, I usually when when I make a trade offer, I try to give it you know a, a short paragraph saying here's how I think it helps us both to get the ball rolling and to get the concept out there. Uh, what do you think? I agree with you completely. I can't stand the online just firing away an offer. Uh, I think it's great that after you and I call each other or email each other or text or gchat or whatever, that we can put in the trade through a platform. But just getting these emails in my inbox saying, uh, you know, so-and-so has offered you this trade, I, uh, I think it, it hinders trading. Glenn, so far so good. Uh, this has been terrific. Can you come back a little later on in the show? Absolutely. Glenn Colton writes for FantasyAlarm.com and appears every Tuesday night on the Colton and the Wolfman show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. He'll be back a little later in the show, but coming up next, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League, next on Baseball HQ Radio. You are challenged by the game of baseball to do your very best day in and day out. And that's all I've ever tried to do. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. 
Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson's on deck with the American League Report, and leading off, it's the National League and BaseballHQ.com analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here, and a lot of news this week. Is there ever? And we start in St. Louis, where the news involves veteran right-handed starter Adam Wainwright, who goes to the DL with more trouble with his elbow. They're calling it elbow inflammation. Doesn't sound good, uh, given his past history. Phil Hertz covers the Cardinals for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. And Phil reports, first of all, that uh, right-hander John Brebbia was recalled from Class AAA Memphis to take Wainwright's roster spot, but he says the April 28th starter in Wainwright's place is going to be top prospect Jack Flaherty. What's the story here? Wainwright had a very poor start early in April, but it pitched reasonably well over the last couple of starts. 12 innings, 3 earned runs, 16 base runners, but fastball topping out just at 90 miles an hour. Uh, so some struggles going on early for Wainwright. Uh, the major impact of the transaction is the uh, the likely recall of Jack Flaherty, the Cards' number two prospect and overall f- number 41 prospect uh, entering the season. Uh, Flaherty had one excellent outing on April the 3rd when Rainwright was last on the DL. Uh, and in three starts at AAA Memphis, he has a 2.25 ERA with 22 strikeouts and only three walks over 20 innings pitched. Well, you got to like a 7-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio even in AAA, and uh, that's more than a strikeout per inning, so you got to like that as well. Uh, I'm sure Jack Flaherty's going to come as no surprise to most uh, fantasy owners, especially those in National League-only formats. Uh, he'll be grabbed if he's not already rostered. But if he's not, what the heck, uh, you, you, you should get a bid in right away, that's for sure. Uh, Jack Flaherty is also rated as a strong start in our pitcher matchups at BaseballHQ.com, uh, your day job at the site is as a pitcher matchups analyst. The, the matchups are using a new rating system. How does it work? I really like the new system that we're using in the matchups column this year. The, um, the system is based on four scores, a score for strikeouts, a score for, uh, for ERA, a score for whip, and a score for wins. And the overall matchup score then is a combination of those four. And so it, it, uh, it's working, I think, a lot better. There were fewer strong starts indicated a year ago. A guy like Flaherty coming up because he had very little track record uh, would not have shown up as a strong start this early. It would have taken him several starts in the majors before we would have been willing to, to really look at that. So uh, I would certainly advise everyone to take a look at the new matchups column. Uh, I've always, for years in the matchups column, used it to look at, uh, at pitchers who may be under the radar. Uh, a guy who gets a strong start really early before anybody else notices him may be worth putting on your radar. So I uh, really like the way the new, new pitch-up matchups column is working. Has obvious uses in daily uh, fantasy baseball, but also uh, there's a lot of uh, focus these days on streaming pitchers in, uh, in long-season formats. So uh, there's uh, something to be said for both angles as far as the pitcher matchups tool is concerned at Baseball HQ. It is a really good tool. And uh, what do we know about this John Brebbia, the prospect that the Cardinals called up? Well, Brebbia was already on the St. Louis-Memphis shuttle and likely to not have a lot of value until he secures a permanent spot in the Cardinals' bullpen. Uh, and even then maybe used only in middle, middle relief, which would limit his fantasy value. But I think on, uh, on Wednesday night, he did pick up his first save. It was one of those, uh, long, long several inning deals. Uh, but the, they're, uh, they're already using him in important situations. So, uh, John Brady is a, perhaps the guy to look at. 
When I think of how hard it is to find a guy who's going to get a save, and then you get this guy comes up and pitches what three and a third or whatever it was, and gets a save the first time he steps on a major league field. Boy, baseball's a funny game. I'll tell you that. It is uh, indeed. <laughs> it is indeed. In the least surprising news of the week, Nick, Atlanta called up its top prospect, 20-year-old Ronald Acuna. I guess the first question here is, what the heck kept them from making the move earlier? Yeah, right. I mean, clearly some machinations having to do with service time and arbitration eligibility. But also, Acuna was off to a slow start at AAA Gwinnett. Um, but it took just two losses to Cincinnati, the worst team in baseball, to make the, make it, make the call and to get him, get him up and into the lineup. Um, and he had actually picked it up in the last 10 days at AAA, uh, 300 batting average, seven runs, a home run, uh, two ribbies, uh, three stolen bases. Yeah, I had heard reports that he was pretty uh, cheesed that he got sent down to Gwinnett in the first place and that he may have been uh, dragging his behind a little bit just out of sort of petulance. A 20-year-old kid, he thought he's showed enough in spring training, certainly, that uh, he probably deserved to have a, a shot in the big leagues coming out of camp, but then there's these money issues and playing time issues and so forth. Uh, the Daily Call-Ups report at BaseballHQ.com covers every prospect who gets called up, and uh, the analysts at Baseball HQ's scouting team say Ronald Acuna is what they call a rare five-tool talent. We've heard about those kind of guys all our lives, but you don't see them too often. No, you really don't. He's really a generational kind of talent. He does some things well and some other things absolutely great. Uh, plus to plus plus tools across the board. Uh, we haven't seen that from a debuting prospect since Mike Trout made his big, big league debut in 2011. Uh, Acuna has mashed through three levels and through the AFL last season. Absolutely destroyed spring training to a tune of uh, 432 batting average, 519 uh, on base, 727 slugging, uh, four home runs, four stolen bases. Well, that high on-base percentage, Nick, that uh, gives rise to Acuna being at the top of the lineup, could that boost RBI totals down the lineup, uh, especially for a guy like Nick Marcakis in the cleanup spot? Well, it sure might. I mean, it, it, it's one of those interesting things to speculate about because Marcakis is a is a, a real veteran who knows how to handle the bat. And you get a guy like Acuna, uh, if, he, if he's hitting at the top of the lineup, and he didn't start there, certainly in his first uh, – uh, in his first major league start. But if a guy like that is hitting at the top of the lineup and he gets on first base, he could be on third by the time Marcakis comes up. And uh, then it's just a fly ball away from a run scoring. So he's the kind of guy that can really put some spark into a team, especially with an on-base percentage like that. He has really fantastic foot speed as well, which means uh, a little likelier to score from first on a double, uh, a little likelier to score from second on a short single, a little likelier to score from third on a ground out, those kind of things. Speed really helps across the board. Uh, before we move on, though, Nick, uh, every time a guy like Acuna comes along, it's it's the whole baseball universe starts singing his praises and predicting that he's going to, you know, play five years, quit, and go straight into the Hall of Fame and perhaps get elected uh, into some uh, high office. There must be some flies in the ointment here, aren't there? Well, sure there are. I mean, there are lots of parts of his game that are unrefined, and he hasn't been at the major league level yet. So, And, and don't forget the Alex Rodriguez 10 steps to, to stardom. That's uh, what I was thinking, yeah. Mantra that we that we look at at Baseball HQ. And in his first game, he wasn't all that great. He got one hit. He scored a run. It was the tie-breaking run, so that was a good thing, but also struck out twice. Uh, he gets caught stealing a lot. His breaking ball recognition skills haven't quite developed yet. And as, as we know, uh, he could start getting a, a steady diet of breaking balls early on. Uh, but the raw skills are so good that he should post productive returns right out of the right out of the gate, I would suspect. Yeah, I guess uh, it, it's a big jump. They say it's the biggest jump that you can make is getting up into the big leagues 
in baseball, uh, moving up the line from uh, single A to double A to triple A, and then there's this huge jump into the major leagues. And one of the biggest differences is major league pitchers throw breaking balls a lot better than guys who are in triple A, and, and it takes some getting used to. It does indeed. And so it's one of those things that a guy has got to learn to adapt to because he's going to see breaking balls that he didn't see in the minor leagues, and he's going to may see them a lot more often than he saw them in the minor leagues. And major league uh, players are, are better at pitch sequencing too. So there's a head game going on and trying to figure out what's the guy going to throw me next. And uh, uh, some of these guys are really good at sequencing their pitches. In the speculator column at BaseballHQ.com, I like this column because it uh, gives them a little less uh, analytical rigor, shall we say, and a little more gut feel. Uh, Ryan Bloomfield looked at some players with what he called skills searching for roles. And one guy he turned up in that uh, survey was Cubs outfielder Albert Almora. What's the scoop with Albert Almora? Well, Albert uh, Almora, Ryan noted that Almora had 20 home run upside in the baseball forecaster. But that came with a playing time warning on a loaded Cubs roster. How, how, how often was he going to get into the lineup? He had a bad spring, uh, set him back into a platoon role uh, facing just left-handed pitchers. But he's made the most of it so far, 15 hits and 43 at-bats. Uh, his skills have been uh, in line with the, the rest of our, our, our rest of the season projections, 84% contact rate, uh, low PX, but 145 speed. So that's what we've seen out of him so far. He also has elite defensive skills in center field. Uh, and fellow center fielder Ian Happ's start has really been been, been poor. Uh, 212 batting average for Happ, 268 on base percentage, 365 slugging, uh, only a 52% contact rate in his 52 at bats. So uh, the playing time might be open for Almora to get uh, to get more at bats. And uh, he showed modest growth against right-handed pitchers last season: uh, 81% contact, 91 PX. So he could do more than tread water if he's in there in an everyday role. Uh, so Almora is certainly a guy who's already getting some playing time and doing relatively well, uh, and we could see more playing time as uh, uh, if Hap continues to struggle uh, as things open up. I'm curious that a guy with a 91 PX, uh, 21 PX so far this year, you said, and a 91 PX last year versus right-handers has a 20 home run upside. Is uh, uh, is there something that we're missing here? No, I think it's you know just so far this year he's not not been uh, putting a lot of wood on the ball in the in the short time that he's been up. But I think there's uh, Amora's always had that kind of upside in terms of home runs and a lot of speed. Ryan was also a little bit of a uh, soothsayer here. He mentioned Jesus Aguilar of Milwaukee in the column, and he said Aguilar was just one Eric Thames injury away from getting playing time. And guess what? Eric Thames goes on the DL with a torn UCL in his left thumb. Before we talk about Aguilar, what's the prognosis for Thames? Well, you know, he could be out a while. I mean, that's one of those injuries that uh, that lasts a while. It could keep him on the DL for, uh, for, for certainly several weeks, and then with that kind of injury, you don't know how he's going to perform, especially when he gets back. So we may see some uh, some power dip initially when he returns to the lineup. I remember uh, Mike Trout had a uh, similar injury uh, when he went on the DL. He recovered relatively quickly and went right back to work, but uh, certainly there are problems with uh, with that injury depending on where it is and, and so forth. It can be quite a lot worse than... Uh, than uh, Mike Trout had. Uh, what do we know about this Jesus Aguilar in the meantime? Aguilar, Aguilar according, and, and Ryan said that Aguilar was a third stringer at first base on our depth chart, but uh, our skill projection suggested that he's a lot better than that if he can find playing time. Uh, notable power group growth last season at 154 PX, a 165 XPX in 279 at-bats. So in the forecaster, we uh, put Aguilar with a 30 home run upside 
Uh, and he had sacrificed contact to do that, but so far, just five strikeouts in uh, 35 April at bats. Uh, already was seeing regular playing time against left-handed pitchers, uh, and uh, now is getting good, going to, probably going to get regular playing time uh, in, a, in a really good park and a really uh, strong lineup. Aguilar is also the subject of Alex Becky's report in the Frequent Flyer commentary a little later on in this podcast. Uh, now, if Amora is under the radar a little bit, San Francisco outfielder Mac Williamson is way under the radar, although he uh, certainly got on the radar screen with a splash in his early going. In the new Market Pulse column that we both like a lot, uh, columnist Brad Coleman says uh, Mac Williamson is how fantasy championships are won. And uh, columnist Alec Dopp at BaseballHQ.com also mentioned Williamson in his watch list column. Now, other sites around that I've been seeing are not being quite so enthusiastic about Mac Williamson, although he has, uh, I think, three home runs and 19 at-bats. Uh, what goes on with Mac Williamson? Why are we so excited? Well, you know, if, if, you, uh, if you take a look at it, he began working late last season with hitting guru Doug Lotta and has been scorching hot ever since. He was, he was very hot. Uh, in camp this spring, he's been very hot in the minor leagues. He has completely revamped his swing, uh, and uh, something may be may be happening here. Uh, and that revamped swing could have could have a lot to do with it. Uh, he just obliterated the PCL during the first two weeks he was there. First game back in the in the major leagues, he hits a home run. And what we're looking at now with with Mac Williamson is uh, Hunter Pence is struggling with performance, uh, struggling with health issues on a DL with a thumb injury. So opportunity is wide open for. For Mac Williamson, and if he continues to hit, uh, certainly we're not projecting a whole huge number of at bats right now. But if he hits the way he is, you've got to leave the guy in the lineup. I mean, here's a guy that's popped three home runs at his first 19 at bats in the major leagues. Uh, you're not going to take him out of the lineup while he's this hot. Uh, and some other sites are starting to recognize that. But this could become a more long-term kind of thing with with Mac Williamson. Uh, certainly there are warts and there are things just like with Acuna that we don't know about yet. How is he going to handle the breaking ball uh, with this revamped swing? He's had problems with that in the past, uh, and that could eventually be his downfall. Also, the guy doesn't like to take a walk, uh, has not taken a walk so far in the big leagues, always doing better at that in the minors. So those two things, uh, those two warts could uh, could slow him down. But uh, Mac Williamson is the kind of guy you might get on your on your roster right now very, very cheaply because other people are ignoring him, and there certainly is some upside here. And uh, Doug Latta is one of those guys that probably isn't written about as much as he should be. He's got a pretty interesting track record of rescuing players by uh, revamping their swings, and the example that jumped to my mind as soon as I heard that name was Justin Turner of the Dodgers, who is kind of a career utility guy, bench guy, and all of a sudden he works with this Doug Latta, and uh, guess what? Justin Turner's all-star caliber hitter. Yeah, right. So, could, would you take a, a Justin Turner in your outfield if you could uh, could grab him for uh, for uh, uh, two cents on the dollar, which we may be able to do at this point? So, I would run right now and get uh, uh, get Mag Williamson on my roster. Uh, you know, if you've got some kind of reserve slot or anywhere, you can just stash him to see how this goes. But right now, he's blazing hot. So, so get him in there. Uh, I really like the fact that in, in Brad Coleman's column, there was a link to the uh, the newspaper story that talked about Doug Ladder working with him. So if you have some questions about that, you can go right from that column to the link and see exactly what's going on. My only concern is, uh, depending on how league rules work in various leagues for our listeners, uh, it might already be too late on Mac Williamson. Three home runs is going to catch a lot of people's attention. Uh, now that he's had them, there's going to be more media coverage. The Doug Latta link will probably be brought up in more mainstream ways. And uh, 
gosh, it might already be too late. But if, if you have daily moves or something like that, what are you listening to us for? Get over to your website and get that uh, get Mac Williamson on your roster. It could help. Absolutely. Nick, thanks a million for helping us out again this week. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. You're very welcome, Patrick. Hey, PD. Good to be here. We'll start off in Texas. The Rangers are reeling. They're off to a 9-17 and 17 start as we speak, and they've had some injury troubles uh, and uh, certainly another bad hit from the injury brigade. Uh, Adrian Beltre, the Hall of Fame to be third baseman, is on the DL with a strained hamstring. I think he's had uh, lower body issues like that before. They've already lost their entire middle infield for a good portion of the season, and now they have to figure out how to deal with the loss of Beltre as well. This can't be easy. You covered this in Playing Time Tomorrow, Rod Dell in playing time today. What's going to happen in Texas? Yeah, right now the, the, the Rangers don't have a lot of depth, uh, certainly not MLB ready depth. Um, this hasn't been a club that was expected to contend largely because of some really poor starting pitching. But like you said, all of the infield injuries, uh, their offense has taken a big hit as well. And, and uh, their defense, uh, their outfield defense, aside from center field, is is pretty suspect too. The the best news here, I guess, is that Beltre's DL stay isn't expected to be very long. It's a it's a grade one strain. It's one of the easiest. But you're right, given his age and recent hamstring in uh, situation, this might linger. Um, if you remember, at the end of last year, he was DHing most of the time because of a hamstring injury, and he's he's what 39, 38, 39, something like that. Uh, uh, for now, it looks like uh, Isaiah uh, Kiner Falefa is going to take over third base. And Drew Robinson, who seems to have nine lives in spite of his lack of production, he's 10 for 60 with a 43% contact rate, which is pretty abysmal. He's going to get more at-bats at second base. Uh, Ryan Rue is going to be Beltre's roster replacement. He's pretty much of a journeyman at this stage of his career. But right now it sounds like the Rangers are committed to keeping Joey Gallo in left field for the time being. Renato Nunez is another name that could pick up a few at-bats uh, and perhaps some left field, corner infield got time. He's a guy who brings uh, a little, uh, a lot of power, frankly, but big holes in his swing. He has trouble getting to that power and not much of a glove. The, right now the Rangers seem to have a lot of these guys on their roster. I'm just uh, really staggered by Drew Robinson. You mentioned a 43% contact rate. That means he's striking out 57% of the time. That's fairly ridiculous. And it raises the question, all of these kind of stumble bums rolling around in Texas, about Willie Calhoun uh, in AAA Round Rock. Uh, he's got power. He's got bat skills. He's certainly a top prospect. They're past the the first uh, threshold for service time considerations. Uh I guess they say he's trying to learn how to play outfield. I don't know. Can he be any worse than some of these guys? What's going on here? Well, it's pretty clear uh, uh, already in April and and maybe even earlier than that that the Rangers, they're not going anywhere this year. They're not going to the postseason. And as such, right now it makes little sense uh, to promote uh, Calhoun before gaining that extra year of service time. He actually has a week to go. I think May 3rd is the date upon which the Rangers are seemingly in, in the clear and aft, and they will get a, an extra year of service time for Calhoun. So Calhoun has a pretty reasonable shot at uh, being up uh, with, within a week or so. Now, keep in mind that while few observers think he's going to struggle at the MLB level over the long haul, he's, his, his, on, his uh, OPS so far is just 742, so He's not exactly knocking the uh, the door down right now after 74 at-bats. And he's still raw defensively, so the Rangers may wait a little longer. But the odds seem pretty heavily favored in, in, in for a, uh, a May promotion. And that 742 OPS you mentioned after 74 at-bats, that's in the Pacific Coast League, which is a kind of a hitter's paradise, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I'll make allowances for the small sample size and the cold weather, and uh, he wasn't particularly happy about uh, being sent down this spring. So uh, my guess is that he's going to produce pretty quickly once he, get up, he gets up. So I'd still be betting on May. You know, they said the same thing about Ronald Acuna, who did get called up this week, uh, and it seems to me that if you were uh, miffed about being sent to the minors, uh, the last thing you'd want to do is not play well, you know, deliberately uh, scuffle or, or not put your heart into it because, you know, sooner or later that you, you do want to get recalled and you don't want to have the reputation of a guy who sometimes sulks and uh, leaves his best game on the bench. Uh, uh, the Orioles, speaking of injuries, lost Tim Beckham, their infielder, to a strained left groin earlier this week. He's on the DL along with uh, his fellow infielder, Jonathan and scope Matt Dodge covered all of this in his playing time today article at baseballhq.com what's going to go on with the Orioles yeah Beckham's injury is even worse than uh, initially feared since as Matt noted in his uh, playing time today piece uh, he's going to have to go undergo core muscle surgery that's going to sideline him until sometime uh, in mid to late June and I'll, t- I'll tell you what not only is this situation similar to the Rangers and all the f- infielders going down in Baltimore that like you said they lost scope uh, um, but but the Orioles have little depth behind these names that any fantasy owner can really be confident will pick up the slack uh, they recently grabbed uh, Jace Peterson off the free agent discard pile his biggest strength maybe is versatility and we're assuming right now that some combination of Peterson and and a few others uh, they have uh, Danny Valencia and Luis Sardinas um, playing um, these guys are gonna are gonna somehow pick up the slack but regardless of your format or league depth there's just nothing here that any any owner is gonna be running out to pick up Uh, this is another team like the Rangers that's seemingly going nowhere. They should be in full rebuild mode. And as some are already suggesting, an in-season trade of free agent to be Manny Machado almost seems inevitable at this point, which is something that AL owners might want to consider right now. If you lose the stats, if he gets traded out of the league, for sure, it's a real big concern. Uh, uh, Jace Peterson's versatility is the biggest strength, but I think in his case, uh, isn't it a situation where uh, what that means is he can be really bad at multiple positions? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. He could be bad at second, third, and shortstop. Uh, so if, uh, if your league gives you points for that, go get him. Meanwhile, the rich get richer in New York. They called up uh, Glaber Torres, the Uber prospect they picked up from the Cubs uh, in the uh, Aroldis Chapman deal. Uh, this is something that Matt Dodge also wrote about this week. Uh, who is Torres going to be replacing and how long is he going to stick around? Well, Brandon Dury has had migraine issues most of the season, and this is what's really providing Glaber's window. He's, uh, Drury's being treated, and he doesn't yet have an ETA, so it, it's probably at least a few weeks, maybe two, three weeks, maybe even longer before he returns. Uh, Tyler Wade got the first opportunity, but his struggles led to a return to AAA and, and opened up the roster spot for Torres. And, and let's face it, if a guy with Glaber's elite skills gets a shot at the bottom of a, of a really good lineup like the Yankees in one of MLB's best offensive parks he has a chance and so far so good he's five for 16 at second base over his first four games so it's possible that he sticks around for a while you know this this type of depth and versatility and these young phenoms that the Yankees have were one reason I wasn't really all in on the Neil Walker signing even though I like Walker um, but any kind of slump or D. Elston is going to provide an opportunity for someone with talent who might never give that job back shades of Wally Pip 
Seattle will reportedly get Ryan Healy back from the DL. He was on there with an ankle sprain. He should be back on Friday of this week. Uh, apparently, Dan Vogelback was spotted saying goodbye to his Mariner teammates in the locker room after Thursday's game. And now he's probably back to AAA. Uh, this situation was something you and Rod Trusdell again covered in playing time tomorrow and playing time today. Vogelback had a huge Cactus League performance, led everybody in uh, home runs and batting average, and people thought maybe he was going to stick in Seattle, get some playing time, especially with Healy on the shelf and Nelson Cruz. But once again, for Dan Vogelback, it doesn't turn out uh, the way he hoped. Yeah, I mentioned a few pods ago that I'd seen Vogelback this past spring, and while he hit well, I thought his, his defense and immobility really worked against him like few players I'd ever seen before. But I think more important, keep in mind that Seattle had pretty much moved on from Vogelback this offseason when they dealt for Healy. So they saw something overall that they really weren't happy with. And and his performance to date in Seattle just wasn't real persuasive. I think he, he hit something like 202 in, uh, in the April at-bats that he has. But uh, but hey, he, he still has the plate skills. He heads for Tacoma and shows some pop. Uh, the Seattle DH job will likely open up next year after free agent Nelson Cruz moves on. So... Keeper League owners should at least be mindful of this. I can see that point, but, you know, I'm starting to believe that maybe Vogelback's just not a big league hitter. No, you're right. Uh, he had every opportunity, and if you look at the numbers, uh, he, he kind of killed himself at the plate, not necessarily in the field. So um, he's not somebody I would be rushing out to pick up, that's for sure. Meanwhile, Ryan Healy returns. What do you think we can expect from him? Yeah, Healy isn't any great shakes. He has hit for power at the major league level, and he and he has some upside there, as Rod noted in his piece, depending on how you look at his two-year progression. Uh, his plate skills aren't great, but even there, his batting average isn't going to kill you. He's probably a, a 250, 260 hitter. His, his career batting average after 830 at-bats is 270. That might be a little inflated. He hasn't gotten off to a great start. I think he's a uh, two for 22 but then again after February hand surgery kept him out for all but 16 spring training at bats and and then later the ankle sprain earlier this year that's hardly surprising Uh, I think he'll be okay he's serviceable boy it's nice when the best thing you can say about a guy is he's serviceable kind of damning with faint praise Uh, finally something you and I talked about previously here on Baseball HQ Radio Melky Cabrera who'd been floating around uh, since the end of last season as a free agent didn't get the big contract I think he was hoping for he's finally been signed he gets a minor league deal for a million dollars maybe up to two in incentives depending on playing time Uh, the Cleveland Indians though and you say uh, you don't think that's a big surprise no, I, I don't. This was the kind of club I thought would would sign Cabrera. None of the non-contenders are going to spend big bucks in a season where they're, they're not going to compete. And Cleveland started out uh, has started out really poorly on offense. They're one of, in fact, they're one of uh, the majors' worst offensive teams to date. They're averaging uh, about 3.5 runs per game over the first 22 games. Uh, obviously, a small sample, and the April weather uh, being mitigating factors. But Melky's coming off a, two seven, a 2017 slash line of 285, 324, 423, and 17 homers between Chicago and Kansas City. And he's reliably produced this kind of output uh, over the years with near equal success against both left-handed and right-handed pitching. So you, you look at Cleveland's start and... Uh, um, you look at Melky being able to provide some help in right field, which has been a, a Brandon Geyer, Tyler Naquin split thus far, or even in left field after the next Michael Brantley injury, uh, or, or even at DH, where Edwin Encarnacion is showing a little age with his contact issues. Uh, and 
this was a good signing by Cleveland, I think. I think he'll need some minor league time, but he should join the roster sometime in May. I've had Edwin Encarnacion on my team a few times in the last few years. He's he's a notoriously slow starter, so I wouldn't expect a lot going on there. Really, the weak link in Cleveland's offense so far this year has been Jason Kipnis, hasn't it? Yeah, you're right. Uh, Kipnis has been a weak link, um, but uh, obviously at second base, um, uh, Cabrera's not going to replace him there. And the outfielders haven't been awful, but if you look at the names and you look at the production, uh, um, this is uh, particularly in right field. Um, they've never trusted Nake when he's hitting about 270 right now. Brandon Geyer has been a journeyman. I would frankly rather have Melky Cabrera on offense there um, before either of them. Yeah, when I uh, saw the news that Melky had been signed, my first thought was, don't the Indians already have about nine outfielders uh, trying to figure out a, a timeshare out there? Brantley, Rajai Davis probably in trouble now. Uh, Bradley Zimmer, Naquin, you mentioned uh, there's Greg Allen who had a 10% uh, playing timeshare according to Baseball HQ. Uh, Lonnie Chisenhall, uh, Brandon Geyer, you mentioned him. That's a lot of guys, and now they add another outfielder to the mix. There's got to be some roster changes coming here. Oh, definitely there is, and and let's face it, I don't think they I don't think they signed Melky to uh, to keep him in the minors or sit on the bench. Let's face it, he's he's the only one of of most of those names you've mentioned uh, who's had regular major league production and proven major league production. And he's not an all star, but when you're talking about a guy who can hit two eighty, two ninety, and double digit home runs, uh, that's saying something. It is, and uh, the point you made earlier, he's been very consistent over the last five or ten years. Just uh, the same reliable production you're going to get every year your upside is very limited but so is your downside yeah amen he's got a a floor that that you can rely on and uh and yeah if i'm a fantasy owner particularly if i need batting average uh, i'm i'm gonna go out and get milky all right jock thanks a million for helping us out and we'll catch up with you again in a week's time with more news from the american league Sounds good, PD. See you next week. Jock Thompson is an analyst and director of news and analysis at BaseballHQ.com. When we return, we'll have our Baseball HQ commentaries. The Minor League Minute frequent flyer and pitcher matchups are all coming up here on Baseball HQ Radio. But it's time in the show right now when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In From A to Zinke, columnist Fred Zinke wraps up his three-part trade strategy series with a look at big-picture trading tips. In Alternative Gaming, columnist Pete Sheridan looks at the updated challenge indicators for 2018. And in Market Pulse, Brad Coleman's terrific column looks at bull market players like Zach Wheeler and Aaron Hicks, some bear market players like Brad Peacock and Jacob Barnes, and some pre-market players like Franchi Cordero and Jose Bautista. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time, and why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer and our pitcher matchups report. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at White Sox right-hander Michael Kopech is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Now that the early arbitration deadline has passed, fantasy owners can expect a flurry of activity as MLB teams can safely call up some of their top prospects and still retain an extra year of salary control. Already, the Atlanta Braves have called up overall top minor league prospect Ronald Acuna, the Yankees have called up their top prospect in Clay Torres, and the Dodgers' Walker Buehler was impressive in his 2018 big league debut. 
One player who has yet to get the call to the majors is the Chicago White Sox Michael Kopech. The 21-year-old Kopech has gotten as much attention for his blazing 105-mile-an-hour fastball and off-field antics as he has for his actual on-field performance, but he has been lights out to start the season in 2018 and looks ready to join a young and potentially very talented White Sox rotation. Kopech backs up the double-plus fastball with a filthy hard slider and a fringe-average changeup, the development of which will be critical to his ability to be able to develop into a frontline starter in the majors. Kopech is a physical beast and at 6'3", 210 can be intimidating on the mound, where his fastball sits at 97-101 to 101 with a bit of arm-side run. Like most young flamethrowers, Kopech can occasionally struggle with control, but he's made steady progress, cutting his walk rate from 4.5 per 9 at AA to 3 per 9 at AAA. And on the year, Kopech now has a 2.14 ERA with 7 walks and 29 strikeouts and a nice 1.00 whip in 21 innings pitched. With the White Sox off to a predictably slow start, there isn't a huge incentive for them to bring Kopech to the majors, but they also don't want to stall his development, and he could force their hand with a few more dominant starts. For those in long-term keeper leagues, few pitching prospects offer the dominance upside of Michael Kopech, and at his peak, he has the size, mentality, and stuff to challenge for the league lead in strikeouts. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week's prospect coverage includes daily call-ups like Ronald Acuna, Max Fried, Eric Lauer, and many other call-ups. And in the eyes have it, Baseball HQ scout Chris Blessing is scouting at A-level the Augusta Green Jackets in the South Atlantic League, looking at San Francisco position prospects Elio Ramos, Jacob Gonzalez, and Malik Ziegler, as well as pitchers Jose Marte and Peter Lanoue. These days, knowing the prospects can mean the difference between winning and losing in a league, and Baseball HQ has the prospect tools you can use to make that difference. Now it's time for our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is somebody I talked about earlier with Harold Nichols, Milwaukee first baseman Jesus Aguilar, and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. On the surface, he's a marginal hacker still waiting for a full-time shot with age 30 right around the corner, according to Ron Chandler's 2018 baseball forecaster. But, oh, how things have changed this week for 28-year-old Milwaukee Brewers first baseman Jesus Aguilar. Beneath the surface may lie a player who could be in line for a big power breakout in 2018. Consider this. One of the most prominent factors for breakout potential, according to Baseball HQ's power breakout profile, is an increase in playing time. Well, check that one off the list. With Eric Dave's out for probably at least six to eight weeks, about two months, after suffering a torn UCL on his left thumb, Jesus Aguilar is likely to see a substantial bump in playing time beginning right now. Not to mention that Jesus Aguilar has demonstrated a history of power skills at some point in the past, another factor in Baseball HQ's power breakout profile. In fact, he belted 16 home runs and only 279 at-bats for the Milwaukee Brewers in 2017, tying him with notables Miguel Cabrera, Starlin Castro, and Josh Harrison, among others, 
all of whom hit 16 home runs in 2017, with significantly more at-bats, almost 200 more at-bats, than Jesus Aguilar. Perhaps it's no wonder that the 2018 baseball forecaster suggested that Jesus Aguilar has 30 home run upside. Once again, that's 30 home run upside, not an actual projection. That's why Jesus Aguilar, like all of our for good flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Maybe the odds are against a 30-home run campaign for Jesus Aguilar in 2018. After all, we've only explored a few of the factors associated with Baseball HQ's power breakout profile. Then again, Jesus Aguilar has a track record of beating the odds. Signed as an undrafted free agent by Cleveland in 2007, it took seven years of toiling in the minors before making his Major League debut for the Indians on May 15, 2014. He batted 304 for AAA Columbus in 2014, his first year at AAA, and compiled a respectable 271 batting average over the next three seasons. Plus, he produced over 90 runs batted in in both 2015 and 2016. And despite leading the International League in home runs in 2016, Cleveland designated Jesus Aguilar for assignment in the offseason. Claimed by Milwaukee off waivers in 2017, Jesus Aguilar has never looked back. And neither should you when your team claims Jesus Aguilar, our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has the frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for pitcher matchups. Our matchups are rated on a scale of plus 5 to minus 5, with starts above plus 1 rated as strong starts, starts rated minus 0.51 or worse rated as weak starts, and everything in between pretty much a judgment call. Here we have a scan of Masahiro Tanaka in Los Angeles to face the Angels and Garrett Richards, as well as Mike Fultonevich at Philly to face Nick Pavetta, as well as some other matchups for the weekend, here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. This weekend we have two marquee matchups, one in each league and both on Saturday. The New York Yankees cross the country to face the Angels in L.A. There we have this weekend's only American League game featuring both starting pitchers with matchup ratings above 0.5. Masahiro Tanaka takes the hill for the New Yorkers and Garrett Richards gets the call for the Anaheimers. Tanaka has the better matchup rating at 115 versus Richards 057. When we break down the component ratings, we see that advantage emerges from Tanaka's edges in ERA and win ratings combined with his significant superiority in whip ratings. Richards is rated somewhat stronger in strikeouts. In his lone outing against the Angels last season, Tanaka threw a PQS 4, but this season he's been less effective on the road. In 29 innings pitched over 5 games started, Tanaka has 28 strikeouts and just 6 walks for a command ratio of 4.7 strikeouts per walk, a whip of 114, and a base performance value or BPV of 125. Don't be put off by Tanaka's current ERA of 528. An unfortunate strand rate of only 57% has been the culprit and his expected ERA is 375. Richard's early season profile is a bit different than Tanaka's. In his five starts, Richards has logged 26 innings, striking out an impressive 35, but walking an alarming 16. That's a command ratio of only 2.2 strikeouts per walk. Richards' first pitch strike rate of 54% makes it appear that his whip of 131 is for real. 
That's why Tanaka has the big edge in the whip ratings, which leads to his combined matchup rating differential advantage of 58 over Richards. The National League's marquee matchup features two early season surprise young upstart teams in the National League East. The Braves and the Phillies have very similar overall one-loss records and nearly equal run differentials so far in the 2018 season. This game is in Philadelphia, where the Fightin' Phils have the second-best home record in Major League Baseball. The Braves are below 500 on the road. Atlanta sends Mike Fultonevich to the mound with a matchup rating of 096, and the Phils counter with Nick Pavetta and his matchup rating of 051. Fultonevich seemed to fade in the second half last year, as his one lost record fell from 6-5 to 4-8. His ERA ballooned from 383 to 604, and his whip went from 120 to 133. But Fulty had expected ERAs of 462 in the first half and 474 in the second half, and BPVs of 74 in the first half and 75 in the second half. The main difference for Fultonevich was in hit rate and strand rate. He went from a first-half hit rate of 30% and strand rate of 78% to a second-half hit rate of 38% and strand rate of 63%. This season, Fultonevich is again benefiting from a fortunate strand rate of 84%. But in 26 innings pitched over five games started, his expected ERA is down to 363 and his BPV is up to 105. Breaking down his component matchup ratings, Fultonevich has the edge over Pavetta in all four categories with the biggest advantages in strikeouts and win rating. Pavetta's 2017 season was also a tale of two halves, as his rookie year improvements saw an increase in BPV from 64 to 100, while his surface stats stayed stubbornly substandard. In 2018, Pavetta has gone 28 innings in five games started, posting 28 strikeouts against only four walks. That's a command ratio of seven strikeouts per walk. Pavetta's expected ERA is 309 and his BPV is an eye-catching 150. Pavetta may be breaking out or it may be too soon to tell. All three of his home starts have been PQS dominant, but the opponents have been light-hitting Miami, Cincinnati, and Pittsburgh. In two road starts against Atlanta this season, Pavetta has posted PQS disaster ones. The overall matchup ratings favor Fulty by 45, but this one may be even a bit closer than that. Let's close our report with the maximum and minimum matchup ratings for daily leaguers. The top matchup rating of the weekend belongs to Arizona Diamondbacks lefty Patrick Corbin, who carries a surefire 298 into his Saturday start against the Nationals in Washington, D.C. On the other side of the coin, our minimum matchup rating is a boon for batters facing Carson Fulmer of the Chicago White Sox in Kansas City. The Royals should rock Fulmer and his matchup rating of minus 160. That game is the front end of a doubleheader on Saturday, and that doubleheader is one of two twin bills scheduled for this Saturday. The other is in San Francisco, where the Giants host their arch rivals, the Los Angeles Dodgers. You can check our site for updated matchup information every day. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick has our weekend pitcher matchups here at Baseball HQ Radio during the season every week. When we return, part two of our feature expert interview with Glenn Colton from Fantasy Alarm and the Colton and the Wolfman Show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Glenn Colton coming up again on Baseball HQ Radio right after this. First of all, I want you to know that this honor that was brought upon me here could not have happened without the great work and the 
advice and guidance that I've had from three of the most wonderful people that I know. And if either of them weren't here today, I know that this day could not be complete. But they're all here, and I just hope you don't mind if I just play a, a word of thanks and uh, a tribute to my advisor and a wonderful friend, a man who I considered a father, Mr. Branch Rickey. And my mother, who taught me so much of the important things early in life, I appreciate no end. My mother, Mrs. Robinson. And, and, and lastly, ladies and gentlemen, my wife, who has been such a wonderful inspiration to me, and the person who has guided and advised me throughout our entire marriage. I, I couldn't have been here today without her help. And then I, in sitting down, I must thank the baseball writers. I never thought at all that I would have this wonderful honor coming to me so early in my lifetime. And to have the writers to elect me on the first time is a thrill that I shall never forget. We have been up in cloud nine since the election. I don't ever think I'll come down. But I want to thank all of the people throughout this country who were just so wonderful during those trying days. I appreciate it no end. It's the greatest honor any person could have. And I only hope that I'll be able to live up to this tremendously fine honor. It's, it's something that I think those of us who are fortunate again must use in order to help others because it's such a tremendous honor that we should be able to go out and do things to help. I'm just grateful, and I'm sorry it's taking so long, but I just wanted you to know I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Glenn Colton from Fantasy Alarm and the Colton and the Wolfman Show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Glenn, welcome back. Happy to be back. Let's go to some major league stories that have been going on with specific players. Uh, you're quite a fine player analyst, uh, and I like to get your opinions on some guys who have been making some kinds of news in the majors so far this year, starting with Jed Lowry and Mitch Hanniger, who are leading the American League in RBIs. What do you make of those two guys? Well, you know, Jed Lowry's always been one question, one question only. Can he stay on the field? Um, and it's this year, and, and actually last year, he's, he stayed on the field. So it's exciting in the sense that he's really, you know, producing uh, really tremendously. But I think it's, it's a sell-high scenario because of the historical health problems. And I also think there's going to be, of course, some regression. I don't see Jed Lowry, though I like him, as a, you know, 1,000-plus OPS or a 400 BABIP uh, you know, type of guy. And, at, you know, age 34, is he really going to hit 48% hard hit when he's never eclipsed 36 and a half before? And I don't see that. So I like him. I think he's a good player. But if you can get full value, make the deal. Yeah, 200 uh, OPS points higher than last year and uh, even higher than that above his uh, career average around 750. He's over 1,000. So uh, what about Hanniger? You know, he's a younger player, obviously, um, being only 27 right now, which is still one of those ages where you can take a jump to the next level. So uh, I'm a lot higher on Hanniger, and plus you see, okay, his BABIP is not inflated, so you're not going to see a correction there. It's only about three 
14, um, and you see a lot of good trends, striking out less, walking more, um, you know, things of that nature. And he's not really selling out to pull for this power. In fact, his pull percentage is actually down five percentage points from the previous year. So uh, Hanniger looks like the real deal. I noticed right away that uh, he's got his strikeout rate under 20% after being a little bit over for the last couple of years, albeit in limited playing time. Uh, how about Teoscar Hernandez in Toronto, 1,100 OPS, a little higher than that, actually, and he looked terrific last September as well. Is is Teoscar Hernandez here to stay? I think he absolutely is here to stay. And, you know, eight homers in 88 at-bats or something like that in September last year in 2017, it's Great Hitters Park. Toronto, all due respect, even with the good start, I think is not seriously making a run for a championship this year, so they should be playing Teoscar. And here's something interesting. His contact and strikeout rate this year in the major leagues is what it was last year in the minor leagues, and that shows me that he's really a player who continues to develop. Giancarlo Stanton, I know you're a Yankees guy. He's uh, hit his fifth home run uh, the other night. And uh, other than that, he's looked like a little bit lost at the plate, a lot of strikeouts, even for a guy who strikes out a lot. I think his strikeout rate's uh, up around a third of his plate appearances, and usually it's below 30%. Uh, how worried are you an eighth of the way or so into the 2018 season about Giancarlo Stanton? Yeah, I'm not worried at all. This is very much what I would have expected, that he would press at the beginning He's making $300 million. He's in the bright lights of, of New York. He sees the short porch and the short fence down the line and goes to Fenway and sees the monster and all that kind of stuff. But he's now starting to settle in. The weather's starting to get a little bit warmer. And I don't think the ball he hit last night on Monday night has come down yet. So I think, if, as knock on wood, as long as Stanton can stay healthy, he's going to have a big year. Buy low opportunity then? Absolutely. No question about that. And my, my only concern from this point forward, I'm not surprised about the first few weeks of, of struggle, is he's playing left field. I saw him run into the fence uh, yeah. in left field on Sunday. Um, just health is a concern. So I don't know that I'd pay 100% of preseason expected value, but I'd pay 90 uh, on the other side of the OPS equation, Domingo Santana and Avisail Garcia both were highly touted coming into the season, down around 550 for OPS, uh, really bad starts to the season. Uh, do you like either of them for the rest of the year as a buy low, or are you staying away? You know, only by very low. Um, I think whoever bought them is still in love with them, and they're not going to sell them low enough for me to buy. You know, Avisail Garcia is what he is. And he's not a big-time power hitter, and he's not going to become that this year, I don't believe. And the 390 BABIP is going to drive his average down, but it's going to be down to still a decent number. But he's going to be a decent batting average, not huge power guy. And Domingo Santana, I just don't see the 31% home run per fly ball lasting from last year. Uh, add that to the fact that they have a playing time glut with uh, you know, Yelich and Kane coming in and, and, and Braun and you know, even guys like Phillips waiting in the minors and, and, and Thames. So I'm not buying into either one unless it's a very low uh, price. The lowest OPS for a non-catching position player who has 60 or more at-bats is Neil Walker of the Yankees down at 463. And again, you're a Yankees guy. Where is Neil Walker in your estimation for the rest of the season? Miami? <laughs> 
Um, you know, I think that Neil Walker is a guy that why not? It was a sort of why not signing. Um, see if Gleyber Torres was out going to shake off the rust quickly. See if Miguel Andohar was going to be able to make it. Um, that kind of thing. I think with Brandon Drury close to coming back, Torres here to stay, Andohar crushing the ball, Tyler Austin being good enough, uh, Walker is probably going to get two games a week somewhere, is my guess. Um, and then when everyone gets healthy, he's a trade candidate. I'd like to talk to you, Glenn, about some game-wide trends. Last year, as you know, was a high watermark for home run percentage uh, since the steroid era anyway, with home runs in about 3.3% of plate appearances. This year, so far at least, uh, the number's down pretty significantly, around 15% to 2.8% of plate appearances. Uh, We're going back to what we had in the early 2009-10 time. How should fantasy owners plan to respond to what is shaping up to be a decline in home run rate after several years of increases? Yeah, I think the numbers are premature, especially because the season started earlier. The weather has been atrocious. It's much harder to hit home runs in you know 30-degree weather when it's snowing. So I, I think I would just wouldn't react to that too much and wait um, for a few more weeks' worth of data. That's good information because I know I've seen a couple of articles that have said that the decline is for real and therefore you don't need as many home runs to be competitive. Maybe you can think about trading a home run guy. At the same time, Glenn, uh, strikeouts, about 21.6% of all batters faced last year, and this year it's up to 23%. That's a 10% increase. Uh, Do you believe in the strikeout growth and how should fantasy owners play that? Yeah, my answer would be the same, Patrick. I think it's a little too early with data, uh, very difficult to hit. Uh, in the cold weather. So I wouldn't react to it at all. I would look at my players and say, I like this guy, I don't, for whatever reason that you're doing the individual player analysis. Because the danger of saying, oh, I can trade a home run hitter, I can trade or or need to get a strikeout pitcher, is invariably you're going to look at the standings from, you know, three out of 26 weeks and draw conclusions from where you stand there, and it is just too early to do that. Patrick Corbin and Sean Manea, both sort of late-round pitchers, uh, $10 guys in only leagues, $6 or so, I guess, in mixed leagues, and they're both at or near the top of the pitcher value charts in 2018. Of the two of them, which one would you bet on to keep it up? For me, it's Patrick Corbin. I, I like both. I like both coming into the season. But if you take a look at some of the advanced metrics, Corbin has Manaya beat on each one. Um, the ground ball rate, Corbin's 54 to Manaya's 48. The swinging strike rate, Corbin's 18 compared to Manaya's 11. First pitch strike rate, Corbin's 66 to Manaya's 59. And, of course, Corbin gets to pitch in uh, the National League, which is always nice to get those pitchers to pitch to. And plus, you know, Corbin had his Tommy John. Um, he's in that very healthy period post-Tommy John. Uh, and Manaya's always been a guy who's had some health issues. Plus, you know, he, it's unfortunate that he was dealing with the ADD issues and, and the um, medication got messed up, according to reports last year. But that's another thing that could recur. I, as a person, I hope it doesn't happen to him. But as a fantasy manager, you have to worry a little bit about that as well. Staying with pitchers, how much do you believe in the bounce-back years that we're seeing from Johnny Cueto and Rick Porcello? Well, I believe in Porcello and have... Uh, a number of shares of Porcello, so I'm uh, I'm buying into that. The uh, the ground ball rate is up. The 
first pitch strike rate is up. And as much as I hate to say this as a Yankee fan, the Red Sox will win a lot of games, so the W's for him should be there. With Cueto, it's a little bit different, I think. I think the Giants aren't going to score a lot of runs. They're playing in a tough division, so I worry about the wins. Um, he's already had some health issues, um, you know, and uh, I like Cueto, but I think his price is still too high. Over the last few years, Danny Duffy of the Royals has been a tout darling, and I read a fair amount of Duffy touting this preseason as well. After five starts, he was 0-3, a 5-plus ERA, a 150 whip. Uh, Danny Duffy, a buy low or a stay away? Uh, I'd, be, I'd be running the, the Carl Lewis speed 100-yard dash away from this one, Patrick. Uh, he's only pitched 150 innings once uh, in his career. The team is atrocious, which means the wins are hard to get. Uh, and the walks are just way up. So for me, I'm just not in. Same question, a different um, pitcher of minus $10 value. How about Luis Castillo of the Reds? Yeah, this is where I take a bit of a different position because the skills are just terrific. Even with a skills reduction this year, an elite 50% ground ball rate, an elite 14% swing strike or, or very strong, and a perfectly solid 60% first pitch strike rate. He's gotten hurt by uh, a very inflated home run per fly ball and, and a very deflated uh, strand rate. I think this is a guy with filthy stuff who they're going to give every chance to work out of it. And I think when the weather gets warmer, you're going to see a player you want to have on your roster in Luis Castillo. This comes up fairly often, but uh, usually that uh, high, st- uh, low strand rate and high home run rate go hand in hand, right? The more home runs means your runners are coming in to score that are allowed on, and if you correct the one, the other one's going to follow. Uh, that that could be a thing. However, that park is pretty good for home runs. Is that a worry? Well, I mean, that that is a worry, but a guy who's, you know, historically had, at least in his brief career, a good ground ball rate, keeping the ball down, I feel better about it than I would, you know, somebody who has a very uh, low ground ball rate, meaning much many more balls are put up into the air. I mean, last year his ground ball rate was almost 59%. So I think he's going to minimize the damage of, of pitching in uh, Great American more than most. Uh, BaseballHQ.com values uh, several starters as being worth minus $25 or less. Uh, Chris Tillman, Miguel Gonzalez, Kendall Graveman, Alex Cobb, and Lucas Giolito, who looked really awful the other night. Uh, do you think any of these guys can turn it around, and if so, who? I don't like any of them for uh, redraft leagues or one year anymore. Um, but uh, if I had to pick one, uh, it would be Giolito, who showed you know pretty good numbers last year with his uh, swing strike and, and ground ball rate uh, and does have uh, when uh, healthy, assuming he is a pretty solid below. but I'm not in on any of them for a redraft league for the rest of this year. On the flip side some pitchers who have surprised with uh, being worth $15 or more by Baseball HQ's valuations uh, so far this year, Blake Snell, uh, Chad Bettis, who saw that coming, finally Dylan Bundy, and Jacob Junis. What's your take on these surprising arms? Any of them really catch your eye? Well, I believe in Bundy for sure. One of the things that, you know, when you really do your studying, you see he he didn't or they didn't let him throw the slider for quite some time. And then in uh, 2016, he throws no sliders. 2017, 22%. 2018, now this year, 26%. That's a filthy pitch, and it's changed his success dramatically. So I believe in that. 
Uh, I believe in Blake Snell, or as our friend Jason Collette calls him, Blocky. Uh, but I do think there's some correction coming with uh, an, you know, an inflated strand rate and a very low Babbitt. But uh, he is good, and he showed at the sort of last month to two of, of 2017 what kind of pitcher he can be. Um, Chad Bettis, uh, I'm rooting for him personally. After all, he's been through, but uh, I don't. I don't believe that he's going to have big time success pitching. You know, in Colorado, I think right. it's hard to do, uh, especially with a very limited swinging strike number and um, a below league average first pitch strike number. And finally, with Jacob Junis, you know, I like him fine for a fifth starter in an AL only, but. His ERA is 2.03, and his FIP, or fielding independent pitching, is 4.06. It's literally double. That just screams in neon, to mix a metaphor, that correction is coming. You mentioned Dylan Bundy throwing more sliders. Uh, sliders are notoriously hard on the elbow, and uh, Bundy's had problems in that area. Does the increase in sliders, which is helping him perform, give you any pause on an injury-related front? You know, some, but... I keep hearing about new studies that the fastball is, is worse than the slider or is worse than the splitter, and I really don't know what to believe. Um, I'm not betting my, you know, dynasty fortunes on Dylan Bundy staying healthy, but uh, I think he's as likely as anyone else to stay healthy this year. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Glenn Colton from FantasyAlarm.com and the Colton and the Wolfman Show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. And uh, Glenn, during the season, I like to ask our experts to talk about players that you think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Boons being guys you like, banes being guys you don't. Let's start with your boons. Uh, these are guys you think should interest our listeners. Uh, let's go to the American League first, and who's a hitter who could be a boon for teams? I'm going to go off the board a little bit here, Patrick, with a name that probably a lot of people aren't talking about, and I wrote about him uh, at FantasyAlarm.com, which is Daniel Robertson uh, in Tampa Bay. Uh, 28% line drive rate, 40% hard hit, and most tellingly, a mature approach, more walks than strikeouts thus far this year. And in fantasy, he's also a guy who plays a lot of positions, and with the 10-day DL uh, roulette game, that's very valuable. It sure is. Uh, how about in the National League, who's a boon hitter for you? Oh, my, my favorite National League hitter, Javier Baez. Um, one of the rules of engagement that Rick Wolf and I play by is a guy who's reached 800 to 1,000 at-bats at a young age um, is destined to go to another level. And people think Javier Baez is what he was in 2016 and 2017. And he's still only 25 years old with 1,000 at-bats played in playoffs in the World Series, and this year he's just out and out raking, being more patient with the walks going up, the strikeouts going down. He is a star now and a superstar uh, by the end of the year. A few years ago, I did a research study for BaseballHQ.com that suggested that the uh, the year you wanted to get a guy was the year after he attained 800 plate appearances, so it sounds like we're on the same page in that regard. Uh, let's go over to the the uh, pitchers in the American League. Who's a boon pitcher for you? Again, I'm going to sort of buck the trend a little bit here and go with Kevin Gosman. I think he's uh, been judged pretty harshly. He had a really bad first start, and in his last five starts, been three runs or less. Uh, he's walking fewer. The strikeouts are up, and we're recording this on a, on a Tuesday morning in his last outing. Uh, eight innings, four hits, one walk, seven Ks. So Kevin Gosman's got some nasty stuff. He was really strong in the second half last year, and people are running away from him, and I think they're running away 
prematurely. And in the National League, who's a boon pitcher? Nick Pavetta is the guy I'm going to go with, Patrick. He, uh, last year, if you go look what he did, you see a 6.02 ERA, and you get very, very worried. Uh, but Pavetta had a 4.26 XFIP. So that showed that there was just really, he pitched so much better than the sort of classic stats show. He throws hard, almost 95 uh, average fastball velocity. And this year, uh, the advanced metrics are really good. Um, you know, 45% ground ball rate was solid. 11% swing strike is solid. 70% first pitch strike, which is really solid. And here's something interesting. Um, he is, I don't believe, I think he's given up one home run this year, and I think uh, only three or four extra base hits or something like that. Um, he's just been really good. And uh, four walks against 28 Ks, I'll take that all day long. Nick Pavetta is here to stay. And a Canadian guy, and you got to like that. Uh, Glenn Colton's boons are Daniel Robertson, Javier Baez, Kevin Gosman, and Nick Pavetta. Let's go over to the Baines. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Again, we'll start in the American League. Who's a hitter who could be a Bane for owners? Jason Kipnis. Uh, this is a guy who, you know, looked great in spring training, hit in Arizona, and a lot of people bought in. But check out the trend over the last four years. Batting averages, 303, 275, 232, and now 182 this year. Um, he's always nicked up. And there's a guy at, second, at third base named Jose Ramirez, of course, is a star, who could shift second base if uh, Kipnis keeps not hitting. And Yandy Diaz is down in the minors. He had 350 in AAA last year, and he's just waiting for an opportunity. So not only has Kipnis been bad, he's got playing time risk with Yandy Diaz waiting to take a job. In the National League, how about a Bane hitter? J.P. Crawford. Um, if you Tell me, do I want him as my shortstop on a real baseball team with a great glove? I'd be interested. This is a guy who's hitting who at 185 uh, in 17. He's hitting 214. Um, one year, sorry, I might have got it wrong, but either 214 and 185 for the last two years. And in the minors the last two years, 244 and 243. There is no track record to support that he will be a productive major league hitter, and there's a risk that Scott Kingery will play more shortstop if Michael Franco keeps hitting at third and Cesar Hernandez keeps hitting at second. So as a hitter, I want no part of J.P. Crawford. Over to the mound again in the American League. Who's a pitcher you think is a bane for owners? I think Aaron Sanchez. Uh, I know I like the talent, but I'm worried about the reduced velocity, and you've got a situation where his you know, fielding independent pitching is 441, which is, shows the ERA is likely to rise. His whip is 144, which is no good. Um, and his swing strike rate has always been below average, and that really worries me pitching in the American League East, the Yankees, the Red Sox, and then Camden Yards when it's warm. And even Toronto is a, a you know, terrific hitter's park. And if your guys are putting the bat on the ball, bad things are going to happen in those parks. So I'm very worried about Aaron Sanchez. And finally, in the National League, who's a Bane pitcher? Going, my National League theme, it seems, with the Banes is happy to have him on my real team, don't want him on my fantasy team, and that's Kyle Hendricks. Uh, his, uh, all his numbers continue to go down, the swing strike, the first pitch strike, um, and you know his FIP and XFIP just haven't supported the numbers he's put up, so I think he's going to be overpriced and underproducing from a fantasy perspective. Glenn Colton's Baines, Jason Kipnis, J.P. Crawford, Aaron Sanchez, 
and Kyle Hendricks. Uh, Glenn, tell our listeners where they can read or hear more from Glenn Colton. Sure. Well, we are live on uh, Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio, Sirius 210 XM 87, every Tuesday night from 10 p.m. to midnight Eastern. Uh, This Tuesday, April 24th, is Season 7, Episode 1, so we're very excited about that. Uh, My column week that was is up on FantasyAlarm.com every Monday. Check that out. Again, FantasyAlarm.com. And, of course, on Twitter, at GlennColton1. That's Glenn, G-L-E-N-N-C-O-L-T-O-N-1. Well, Glenn Colton One, it's been uh, terrific to talk to you again. Uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, hope we get to do it again during the year. It would be my pleasure, Patrick. Glenn Colton writes for Fantasy Alarm, and the Colton and the Wolfman show is every Tuesday night on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. When we come back, it's our weekly talk with Todd Zola and Master Notes coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. I played all the sports as a young boy, but it was always baseball that I loved the most. I collected baseball cards as a hobby and one day dream of what it would be like to have my picture on one of those cards. You see, I always have been a fan of the game first and a ball player second. Maybe that's why I had the love and passion for this great game so much. I only caught five or six games my senior year of high school, but during those five or six games, a scout by the name of Bob Zuck, who is here with us today, believed I could become a big league catcher someday. He held true to his word, and on the night of the draft, at 18 years of age, I signed a contract with the Expos and started my, making plans to head off to Jamestown, New York. Bob, thanks for believing in me. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly talk with Todd. And I'm happy to once again say, Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be back with you, PD. Before we start talking about managers and weather, uh, uh, I'd like to ask you about your Tout Daily team. As our listeners know, we have a, a league of Tout Wars participants that uh, kind of works as a hybrid. We're trying to win each week, but there's also a total points component, and that's how you get these golden tickets uh, through four-week cycles to get into the final, and that's sometime down the road. And you're doing really well. Well, I had I had a really good week. I, I was, wasn't was doing so well the first two weeks, and I had a pretty, pretty good third week. And that's kind of my formula is that I don't – I, if you, you look through the years, I've, I've scored the most points the past two years. I, I haven't won the finals yet, but I've scored the most. You won the finals yeah. one year. I haven't won the finals yet, but I, I'm always competitive as far as total points. And that's just because of my, my philosophy of, of just not messing it up in a, in a DFS league format where you're not trying to win you know, the big money every night. I just If you make the smart decisions, roster choices, and just pile up points over the course of the entire competition, I feel you should be competitive in, 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 you know, every year, one of the, one of the periods I'll end up getting a golden ticket just because I'll have a really good night within that period. But I'm usually competitive total points just because of my philosophy. And this time I happen to have one of my better weeks early. So I'll maybe be competing for the golden ticket during the first, uh, the first period. We have five periods. They're four weeks each. So we've had three weeks. So I, um, you know, le- leading the leading the total points after three weeks. So we'll see what happens this uh, this weekend. But um, I think it's more philosophy, and I don't know if there's a right or wrong. 
maybe because I have one total points, maybe there's it, it is right. But you know, to get a little DFS centric, I play it more like a cash game, and I see people playing on a weekly basis, like it's a tournament. And you're gonna have really good weeks, and you can have really bad weeks. That's just the nature of tournaments, and I just don't think that's the approach for this league sort of thing. Now, these leagues are not uh, specific. We didn't do anything truly special with Tout Wars to get a league set up. There are leagues, it's fairly easy to set these leagues up, and they. the thing I like about it is that it does kind of convert daily into a more a test of consistency rather than a, um, I hate to say luck, but there's a certain amount of luck involved, let's be honest. And the uh, the league format kind of weeds out a lot of the luck because, it, as you said, it rewards being consistently solid week in, week out to amass a lot of points as opposed to being lucky for one whole day or one whole weekend or whatever. Yeah, no, I agree. And actually having a discussion with his, uh, with, with Brad Coleman and, uh, on, on Twitter, he uh, is working with HQ now. He was a guest speaker at the last Arizona first pitch and, uh, you know, very energetic and, and, and engaging guy, speaker. Yeah. We're having a little bit of a discussion. His point is he doesn't understand why season-long DFS leagues are, are are so you know archaic in that they don't allow daily moves, and we're we're kind of explaining that you know daily move you know he says that skill, and my argument in, in seasonal leagues for daily moves is I don't know if it's skill as much as it is common sense, because your rosters you know you're, you're constricted to the, your seven or ten man reserve sometimes even fewer when you have DL lists, and of course you're going to start this guy over that guy because of the matchups. It's really not skill; it's a common sense sort of thing. But if you extend that to DFS where you're not constricted to your roster, you know, the, you've got the entire inventory and you can make all these, you know, matchup decisions based on the entire slate, I think then it does become more skilled and common sense. So I, I, I love these DFS leagues. I wish they would take more traction because it combines the, the, uh, the, the season long, you know, you still have to have a baseline expectation of a player. And, but the thing is, in your season-long leagues, these guys are injured. So you're, you're fleshing out some of the bad luck from season-long, and you're still doing analysis and evaluation on a day-to-day basis with matchups that you know, aren't just you know, contrarian players or I want to get low ownership or something, you know, which are, are valid approaches in, in, in tournaments, but maybe it's just that they're not my thing. So I, I just that's why I like these DFS leagues. It, it's such a you use the word hybrid. It's a hybrid of season long and DFS. I think that's combining the best of both worlds. Todd, in addition to writing at RotoWire and Masters Ball, of course, you write at ESPN.com in their fantasy baseball area, and you had a pretty interesting article this week uh, talking about a couple of things that. Uh, are outside the control of fantasy owners to a large extent. And the first of those is uh, weather. The weather this year has been a particularly uh, potent <laughs> example of how uh, important weather can be in uh, in figuring out who's going to win a league in some cases. Yeah, there's a couple different, you know, yeah, a couple different approaches or, or things to think about. Yeah, they, I, um, I do the daily notes for ESPN every week, and once in a while they... Uh, they asked me to do a feature, and it was uh, did a feature this that you're describing this week, and we talked about the uh, talked about the weather, and we know it's a historical month, and there's been more postponements, postponements than ever before, more cold weather games, and conventional wisdom is even without the weather, pitchers are ahead of hitters. That's what everybody seems to think, anyway. And you know, so the question I wanted to look at was, is that exasperated in the cold, and 
I, the data I found, and I found three seasons since 2000 that are, had a comparable number of cold weather games. And what I found was, was science holds true in that being homers are down in cold weather. The ball does not travel as well in the cold weather. Um, and that, 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 that bore out for the three years that I looked at and plus this year. But runs did not necessarily uh, decrease in the cold weather compared to the, uh, the warm weather games of the same time period. So, you know, in the reason being, the samples are so small and they're biased. You know, certain if, if particular year, I mean, if a, if a good team is playing in cold weather, they're still going to score runs. You know, if a good pitching staff or is pitching in warm weather, they're still going to suppress runs. And it gets even more biased when you factor in dome teams. There's more and more dome teams, so those get cluttered in with the with the the good weather sort of thing. So it's it's not you you can't you know you have to do it on a player by player, team by team basis. As far as the weather goes, you can't just say, you know, this team, you know, this team plays in cold weather, they're going to do poorly. Just look at this year. Look what Pittsburgh has done in the cold. They're, they were off to a really, really good start. And Pittsburgh was one of the coldest weather uh, cities t to start the season. So that was sort of the first general research was, yeah, homers are down. But offense, it, it was down more than it was up. But there was, there was one year, I think 2013, where the cold weather – games where had the the highest era of the of the lot so it's not you know it it, it does have to be in a on a, on a team by team player by player basis another aspect of the weather of course is game cancellations and uh, at this stage of the game mm -hmm. we have some teams 26 27 games played already and uh, there are other teams like minnesota and kansas city that are, are barely at 20 the twins have just they've just been crushed by the schedule in a number of reasons uh, one of them being home games, in that they've had eight home games, but two of them were in Puerto Rico, so they've only been in Target Field six times. And there's an inherent, uh, intrinsic home field advantage that our colleague Gene McCaffrey sort of has been sort of on the on the leading edge of uh, pointing out. He's a uh, a challenge game player, CDM player, so this is really really important when setting your lineups to CDM. And he's shown for years that players have a baseline skill advantage at home versus on the road that being the you know strikeout rate contact rate walk rate all that sort of things they're on the, on the average of five percent better at home than they are in the road and that doesn't count about park and venue and, and and quality of team it's just the baseline skills are better at home so when a team like the twins has not played a whole lot of i mean some teams played six home games their first six games of the year they had you know first first you know first half week in april they already had six home games Twins haven't had them yet, so uh, it, it could open buy-in opportunities if people are down. I mean, I, you're not going to get Brian Dozier from, some, from somebody, I don't think, but it does open open buying opportunities for players like I, I know Max Kepler or Miguel Sano. You know, good players that the counting stats just aren't there yet. Their managers may be down on them when they just look at their stat line, but the truth is they're going to make up. You know, they're not going to make up every game because they're going to double header. They'll sit. Or a long stretch of games with the makeup, they'll, they'll have to sit. So they, you know, a guy like Dozier is going to miss a couple of games more than he would have missed already. But it can open a t in an opportunity. Plus, if you're in looking at your standings and you're just doing some assessment, and you've got Eddie Rosario and you've got Dozier, you're going to be naturally behind in the counting stats. You're going to lag a little bit just because these guys haven't had the game. So 
it's kind of when you do your unbiased assessment of your own team, take a look at the players. And the Cubs and the White Sox and Tigers are are below. And, and you know, Cubs is the important one. If you got well, Rizzo was hurt, but even so, you got Anthony Rizzo and Chris Bryant and uh, and and Wilson Contreras, etc. Danny Baez. You're you're probably going to be lagging a bit in counting stats because you're going to have some of your best players short of game, short of plate appearances. So it's it's just something to sort of keep in mind with early season management. And if you can if you can parlay it into a deal, I know you're not going to get Chris Bryant from somebody, but if you can parlay it into an Addison Russell deal, or Addison Russell, or you know uh, something like that, then you can you know trade an equal player for an equal player. But if my guy's going to play four or five more games than your guy. It's really not an equal trade anymore. I'm going to get more plate appearances from the, from my guy. Now this is true throughout the year, but uh, that there are these imbalances in games played and games remaining. And I think it's an important point that you made that just because a team has some games in the bank doesn't mean that all your good players on that team are going to play because there will be double headers. There will be like where there's cramming in an extra game on a Monday that should be a travel day, which is going to make it harder mm-hmm. for those players to do well. But even having said all of that, the Twins, as we speak, have played 19 games and the uh, Houston Astros have played 26. That's a huge difference. I mean, if you could if you could swap right. uh, Jose Altuve for Brian Dozier, not that you'd want to do it straight up, but if those were the principles in a deal, you stand, if you get Dozier, to pick up five games maybe out of the seven, that's like five extra games. Right. Maybe, maybe you know, let's make it equal. Let's say Max Kepler for Josh Reddick. You know, uh, sure, something like that. But yeah, that's that's the idea. If you can if you can grab a Altuve, fantastic. But that yeah, that's exactly the idea. Is people are just thinking about their what they thought of the player in the preseason and looking at their numbers now, and they don't realize the games. It, it can be done with pitching a little bit, but with the rotations such as they are with off days, it's it's a little bit harder. But where you know where it can be done is, is with closing. Unfortunately. I don't think people are really interested in Fernando Rodney anyway, so it's it, it wasn't as good of an argument this year as it may have been in past years, where you know if it was someone like the Red Sox or Toronto, uh, or well, I know you can't really use L.A. with Jansen struggles, but with a good closer you could say, well, you know, you know, Kimbrel or Asuna are going to catch up in saves. Well, the the teams that we're talking about, Detroit and uh, Minnesota, they're you're not really interested in their closers anyway. Moving along to the other aspect you were talking about in your column at ESPN.com in their fantasy baseball area, manager tendencies. And I think this, again, is something that's probably overlooked in a lot of instances. And in uh, in particular, we have decisions about closers. We have defi- decisions about running aggressiveness on the bases, red lights, green lights, all that kind of thing. And then every year, as you point out, we have this additional wild card. We have a lot of new managers. And not only that, this year there were four managers of teams that have playoff implica- implications, playoff aspirations. Um, and I'm including the Mets in that. The Mets didn't make the playoffs last year. But, you know, the Mets are one of those teams where if everything falls, you know, they've got good pitching and good hitting. If it stays healthy, I think it's fair to say they have playoff aspirations. Um, you know, and they started off pretty well. They're in a bit of a skid now. But, you know, that's baseball. So I think it's fair to include the Mets and, uh, and, and Mickey Calloway. As far you know, in that in that group, then the you know Rod Gardenhire with the twin the Tigers and Gabe Kapler with the Phillies. I don't think we can say playoff aspirations yet, but definitely Aaron Boone, Alex Cora, and um, uh, Dave Martinez 
with the the Nationals, I think is you know they're all they're all you know and it's a World Series bust, but their fan bases all expect a deep run into the playoffs. So that just adds to it because what what it means is they got good players on those teams. You know, they're fantasy relevant players. So I thought it was especially interesting this year to take a look at some of the early the early uh, tendencies. You know, there you know it is early. But I think you can you, you can glean running game. You can glean a few things early, and uh, you know some of it was interesting. Dave Martinez, the Washington Nationals, lead the league in steals. And sure, it helps when you've got Trey Turner at the For top sure, of that yeah. list. But he's letting Michael A. Taylor run, and I think this bodes well when Adam Eaton comes back. So uh, you know, you just just because you know some teams, good managers manage to their players. There are always some managers that force the players to, you know, to do what they want them to do. If they don't like to run, the players don't run. Good managers see Trey Turner. Well, I think anybody's going to let Trey Turner run. But, um, you know, you don't necessarily let Michael Taylor run. And and they are. So I think it bodes well for Eaton when he comes back. And, uh, well, Rendon's hurt. But, you know, a couple guys that on, on the Nationals that you can expect to get 7, 8, 9, 10 steals that maybe he didn't expect, I think that's a good thing. Alex Cora also seems to be a little more willing to flash the green light. Uh, you mentioned that Cora said uh, before the season that he expected uh, 2020 seasons from Betts, Benintendi, Nunez, and Bogarts, and leaving the home runs aside because that's not something the manager can really control. Uh, he does control whether or not they're going to be allowed to run, and if he's got four guys on his roster, he thinks they're going to get 20 stolen bases. That indicates that he's willing to let at least those four guys run, and the question is, does it extend out to letting unlikely guys run as well? But uh, it's going to be a much more running team than it has been. Yeah, now I think you know to say Betts and Ben attending, they've both done it before, and I think Nunez does has too. It's a matter of playing time. What what was the interesting part to me was was Andrew Bogarts and letting letting him run, and I was actually surprised that Jackie Bradley Jr. wasn't listed because I think if you're if you're setting a 2020, you know, I don't want to call it a bold prediction, but it's it's not it, it, it's not a you know what do we call them the uh, uh, the black swan. I mean, it wouldn't be a what, for 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 Bradley to go 2020. Um, but the point being, in you know, early on they are running. Um, Bogarts is hurt. You know, the other thing with Bogarts was as far as the 20 home runs go. His uh, his sort of his profile back in 2016, he's got great play coverage. So he would dink a lot of balls in the right field, and then he'd turn on them occasionally to put them on or over the monster. But if you look at his stats in the vacuum, the hard hit rate, which is, you know, exit velocity, which is sort of the thing now, because of the play coverage and because of the way he would just go the other way with two strikes, in a vacuum, his hard hit rates were, were lower than you might like if you're just reading, if you're just number scouting. And last year was exasperated because he was hurt. And he couldn't turn on a pitch. He couldn't occasionally throw it over the wall, hit it over the wall, because he had a sore wrist. He was kind of hiding it from uh, May. Uh, he got hit, hit by a pitch in May. So early on this year, he was exhibiting that ability to turn on a mistake and really you know, hit, hit it hard. And um, again, though, continuing the plate coverage, uh, you know, the two strikes going the other way, his hard hit rate may not be as much as a a Matt Olson or Aaron Judge who, you know, swing for the fences every time, and that's their game, so that's fine. The last manager on your list is Gabe Kapler. You mentioned him earlier. Uh, he had a bit of a <laughs> rough start with some decisions that got 
got people a little worked up in Philadelphia and uh, in the baseball analysis community, but he seems to have uh, steadied himself and uh, he one thing you got to like about him, it appears that he's pretty willing to try new things and to to use the metrics and other information that are available in a way that's uh, sometimes not easy for a new manager to take on. But one of the things, again, talking about what a manager controls is the Phillies are fourth in baseball in stolen bases. And uh, that indicates that maybe uh, Gabe Kapler is going to say, let's run our way into some extra runs here, which kind of goes a little bit counter to the prevailing philosophy of three true outcomes. Right. Now, I, some research I did, actually, I think I did it for you when you were running the research uh, group at, at HQ, was I found that uh, what what most teams do with, with respect to stolen bases is they kind of tend towards their early season success rate. In other words, the teams that were successful early ran more as the season went on, and the teams whose success rate was was, was lesser early ran less. I think I think Cincinnati and Price was the uh, was the exception. And that makes sense. I mean, it, it, sometimes research, it's nice when it makes sense. But the point being, Kapler is into the numbers. So I suspect that he will, you know, he will, he knows that. And if, if, if Cesar Hernandez and if Scott Kingery are successful early on, I think they'll continue to get the green light. The team's going to improve offensively. And when the weather warms, Philadelphia's been in, you know, been a cold weather spot as well. The team's going to hit more homers. They're going to score more runs. But it does appear that Kapler, if, if Cesar Hernandez especially, continues a, a good success rate, then he should continue to run, which is important because the whole the whole log jam of middle infielders there, and if, if, if Hernandez is leading off, getting on, and running, there's more of a chance that he stays in the lineup. But it's nice to see Reese Hoskins run a little bit. You know, he's a slugger, right? He's a he's a you get him for the home runs, but he's still he's got enough athleticism to swipe a bag or two, and he's got a couple early on. So if if Kapler isn't Putting the you know putting the green light, red light and say, you know we we got you to hit homers. He's letting them run. I think that's a, 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 it bodes well for for Reese Hoskins and his fantasy managers to to get those ten or eleven or twelve steals along with the knock on wood thirty homers. Boy, if he adds ten steals to his uh, expected thirty home runs, all of a sudden he takes a huge leap in value in uh, yeah. fantasy baseball. Uh, Todd. Always interesting. I'll steer people towards that ESPN uh, Fantasy Baseball article to read in full. You really should. We can only cover some of the points in it. It's a terrific article. As usual, it's a terrific article, I should say. Thanks for helping us out with it, and we'll talk to you again in a week. Looking forward already, Patrick. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about my bucket lists, categorizing exit velocity and launch angle. If you listen to Master Notes regularly, you'll know I'm pretty fascinated by all the new data pouring in from baseball's many new measurement systems. Now, from what I've seen, these data are applied to projection and analysis by bucketing the numbers into, well, buckets. The batted ball events are grouped into categories like 90 to 95 miles per hour exit velocity or 20 to 24 degrees launch angle. That's always nagged at me a little bit. It seems arbitrary that one bucket ends here and the next begins there. Why does it have to be 90 to 95? Why not 88 to 93? Why not 23 to 27 degrees of launch angle? That got me to wondering that if we should be looking at each batted ball event with a specific and discrete exit velocity, and launch angle combination. 
So I thought I'd try. I built an Excel workbook to look at every combination in 2017 of exit velocity and launch angle to see whether that combination resulted in a hit. I thought I could use the results to build a database that could then be applied to this year's exit velocity launch angle combinations to see if maybe there are some players over and underperforming and who might be headed for a correction one way or the other. To start the ball rolling, I used the StatCast data compiled at the Baseball Savant website. I downloaded the details of every batted ball event in 2017, not including plate appearances by pitchers. Even at that, more than 123,000 batted ball events, which I thought would be a pretty good sample size. The StatCast data capture exit velocities and launch angles to several places of decimal, so I just rounded them all to the nearest whole number. Even at that, there were 9,038 different exit velocity launch angle combinations. The exit velocities ranged from 5 miles an hour, a Lucas Duda pop-up, to 122 miles an hour, a John Carlos Stanton ground ball hit. Launch angles ranged from minus 85 degrees, almost straight down, to 90 degrees, pretty much straight up. The next step was a big-time number crunch. Somewhat ironically, given how this project started, I started out by looking for clusters in which various exit velocities and launch angles showed unusually high or low hit rates. And if I'm being honest, clusters is just another name for buckets. As you've probably read, there's a pretty obvious correlation between higher exit velocities and higher hit rates. For example, at or under 35 miles an hour, the hit rate is under 20%. At or over 90 miles an hour, it's closer to 50%. No big surprise there. When it came to launch angle, the only surprise was the extreme nature of the connection. For instance, the hit rate of all batted ball events with a launch angle of 67 degrees or higher, basically your cans of corn with too much loft, was 0.4%. Just over 4,800 batted balls, 21 hits. The highest hit rates, as high as 75%, were in the range of roughly 10 degrees through about 26 degrees, or as we used to call them, line drives. It was time to go back to the original premise and get hit rates for each of those 9,038 individual exit velocity launch angle combinations. The idea was not to chart them or make a table of them or anything because that seemed like a lot of work with dubious results that would be too big and complicated. Instead, I used the exit velocity launch angle hit rate table as a database, looking up each 2018 batted ball event in the table to see what its corresponding hit rate was in 2017. From there, I totaled up the hit rates for each hitter's separate batted ball events to get an expected hits total for that player, which would easily allow me to figure out his expected hit rate and to determine whether he was above or below expectation. Of the 249 hitters in the pool with a minimum of 30 batted ball events this year, two-thirds had hit counts within two of their expected hits. But at the extremes, there were some unlucky outcomes. Carlos Santana, for instance, has only 11 hits, half as many as his exit velocity launch angle combinations imply. Joey Votto, Cole Calhoun, and Jose Abreu are all six hits shy of their expected hits, and there are others down from there. Based on their exit velocity and launch angle batted ball events, we might expect these hitters to bounce back and start getting some more hits. Meanwhile, out at the lucky extreme, Jed Lowry, Dansby Swanson, Joey Wendell, and Albert Amora are all five hits ahead of their expected hit totals. In both cases, of course, movement towards more or fewer hits is going to depend on these hitters continuing to have batted ball events in the same proportions they've had so far. 
That's an issue, and it's not the only one with this project's findings. The very nature of using discrete data like these means there will be an issue with small sample sizes at the margins. Almost 2,000 of the 9,000-plus combinations happened only once, making their predictive power pretty weak. As well, a lot of the 2018 combinations didn't occur at all in 2017, and it might take years to total a big enough sample at these outer edges. There are just over 20,000 possible exit velocity launch angle combinations based on the minimums and maximums of last year. Since less than half of those combinations actually occurred in 2017 and 2018, there were bound to be some misses between the years, and that meant some interpolation or estimating from nearby similar exit velocity launch angle combinations. In other words, we're back in the buckets. After all of this ciphering, it's hard to say how useful it will be to look at the StatCast data to this level of exit velocity launch angle specificity, at least until we have several more years of data. We already have a pretty decent approximation of expected hits using the soft, medium, hard, ground ball, line drive, fly ball data. In other words, again, we're back in the buckets. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Masternotes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Thursday in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to the BaseballHQ.com website and sign up. You can also read Masternotes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And, of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Thursday, April the 26th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 14 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. Of course, I also want to thank our guest for this Thursday full edition of our show, Glenn Colton from FantasyAlarm.com and the Colton and the Wolfman show on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Glenn's a very smart, very successful fantasy sports player, a Hall of Fame builder in the industry, and just a great guy on top of it all. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute commentator was... Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Our Frequent Flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And our pitcher matchups were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well, and as always, to Todd Zola, our regular weekly guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes or Sketcher or Pocket Cast, wherever you get your podcast downloads, and leave us a positive review. It really does help us get new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Thursday with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. 
Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.